This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Thursday morning, everyone. It's May 11th here on the Matt Townsend Show and pretty much everywhere else in the country. But uh, we are celebrating a very special day today. It's uh, something I probably celebrate every day, and but now it's acceptable because today is Eat What You Want Day. That was horrible. That was a major confession here this morning on the Matt Townsend Show. I'm Jeff Simpson uh, here with Terry South and Cole Wissinger. We're once again filling in for Dr. Matt, who is still away sick, but there is hope. He may be back tomorrow. So good news there. Uh, we've got a great program ahead of us. We're going to be speaking uh, with a gentleman that's going to talk to us about how maybe Americans have lost their purpose in life. We'll also be speaking with another guest who will be talking to us about what it means to truly be successful. And then our final guest is going to talk to us about what it truly means to be happy, which is a great topic. We all need to be happy. And uh, Cole, Terry, are, are both of you happy this morning? Don't worry. Be happy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I can't remember the name of the artist who did that, but I remember Robin Williams was in the music video. <laughs> Nobody knows. Okay. All right. Well, no response from Terry, so I'm going to assume that means that he is happy. I'm okay. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, Terry, speaking of Terry... You're going to give us a uh, a little preview of what's going on around the rest of the country. Is that correct? There's all kinds of stuff going on. Okay. Um, so a couple weeks ago, Snapchat, the favorite app of uh, well, Cole. Cole, do you use Snapchat? No. You're, you're one of these millennials. You and you and our good friend and Jeff. Jeff. Wrong. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so people use Snapchat. They like it. I have it. I don't really use it. I look at it. And I'm confused daily as to why people post on this thing. It doesn't make any sense to me, but it's not really made for me, I guess. But uh, they had an IPO, Internet Public uh, Initial Public Offering. They made a ton of money. But the the one criticism was is they burned through a lot of money, mm. like billions of dollars. They just the people are funding them and they spend the money, but they're not making any money. So mm. yesterday was their first quarter. As a publicly offered company, okay. Right? So people were very interested to see how what, what, what the uh, the results were. Snapchat's parent company, Snap, lost two point two billion dollars in the first quarter of twenty seventeen, according to the public earnings reports released Wednesday. The earnings report, the company's first since going public in March, shows Snap lagging far about below the gains the investors initially projected. Much of the two point two billion loss came from two billion in one time compensation costs. The company reportedly distributed stock generously to its upper management in advance of the uh, the IPO, giving uh, the CEO, Evan Spiegel, a share package value at $750 million, in addition to his $5.5 billion in shares that he already owns. So there's a, there's a little bit of expense there. Since releasing its earnings report Wednesday, Snap stock fell over 20%, devaluing it to nearly its original price. The earnings report also showed slower user growth, which... Coincided with the launch of a Snapchat-like product by a rival social media platform, Instagram, who has been copying and 
basically stealing all these ideas from Snap <laughs> and throwing it in, into their app. But because more people use Instagram, people are like, oh, it's, it's new. Look at this. And so they're, Snapchat is having problems. Hmm. Lots of money is being lost. So what are they going to do? Who knows? Who knows? Moving on, Amazon has just announced what the Seattle Times is calling the biggest philanthropic venture to date. Inside an office building at its new Seattle headquarters will be a 47,000 square feet of space dedicated to a homeless shelter known as Mary's Place. Since April 2016, Amazon has allowed Mary's Place to occupy an old hotel it owns without charge. But the building will now be torn down to make way for an, for new construction. In a YouTube video published Tuesday, Amazon tells the nonprofit executive director for Mary's or Mary Hartman that six floors of an Amazon building will be set aside for permanent rent-free home for the shelter, allowing it to house more than 200 people. Mary's Place, which hosts women and families until they can find permanent housing, will be located in another former hotel owned by Amazon until its new home is completed in early 2020. So their new office building will have a homeless shelter in it. That's huge. And, I mean, that's a major problem there in Seattle. I mean, really everywhere. But Well, it's also a problem that many blame Amazon for in Seattle. Interesting. Because their success... And the fact that their company grows, which means people work for them, make more money, which means the housing prices go up, which means people can't get a house. It is true. We used to own a home there, and the price, the value of our home just kept skyrocketing because people are moving from all over the world to get one of these amazing jobs in Seattle. Not just Amazon, but Microsoft is there, and yeah, crazy. So because of that success, it's kind of the same problem that San Francisco has, right? where you have all these companies that have success, and then... You know, you, if you're you're just working a normal job, not a technology-related job, all of a sudden you can't find a house. One of the pro- – like uh, the police officers in San Francisco, they can't live in the city, mm. right? So they live in San Jose or wherever. You know, they have to live somewhere else because yeah. it's too expensive to live in the city that they're working in. But the city wants the police living in the city. Of course. Right? It's good to have that police car down the street. Right. You know, kind of keeps, you know, people are, oh, there's a cop down the street. They stay away, but they can't have that because it's just too expensive. So maybe Amazon can not be so good for a while. Can well, they just back it off on the quality? I, I think it's 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 something where they're acknowledging that there there's things they can do to help offset possibly something that, you know, they're a direct cause of. Yeah. You know, they don't want to admit that there's something bad coming because of their success, but at the same time, there's kind of this problem that happens because of their success. Uh, one other thing that's bad that comes from their success? Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> you, you, you already know what you I'm going to say. You complain about it a lot. Go ahead. Uh, there's no two-day shipping. Right. It's, it's, and, and really, it's always like three or five or ten. It's brutal. I mean, how are you supposed to live? Yeah. Why don't you just cancel the service? I'm not going to do that. And they know I'm not going to do that. The That's service. the frustrating thing. I would love to cancel it, but they they can they get they've got me somehow. I can't get out. It's too late for me. So why complain? Well, because you have all the power. Just cancel it. Don't you teenagers on... don't teenagers that get free rent and free food that live with their parents don't they complain still? And they should be kicked out. <laughs> if you complain, get out of here. <laughs> so maybe Amazon will. Release me of my uh, my uh, contract. They don't even release you. You have just <laughs> go in and cancel. It's on you. Do it on your account settings. Um, a couple more little notes here. Uh, a lot of stuff going on with uh, James Comey and the FBI and the White right. House and all this. Uh, kind of a lighter story involved in all this was a the press conference that uh, Sean Spicer and his media staff held late Tuesday night 
after he was after Comey was fired, mm-hmm. they put out a he, he stood at the door of his office and sort of read an announcement of what happened and James, you know Comey's been fired and he tells the people of the media who were still in the, the media of space of the White House and he just sort of talked for a while and then he shut the door to his office and locked it. Good idea. <laughs> media was hanging out there. Members of Congress were hanging outside his yeah. office. Like, we need some explanation. We need, and, and he was just in his office with it locked. And eventually he came back out of his office and talked to some people. Uh, he went out. They, they were outside for some reason talking. And he told everyone, turn off the lights on their cameras. Shut your cameras off and I'll talk with you. So there's all these pictures of him in the dark outside the White House with all the media around him asking, you know, Answering questions, basically deferring everything to the Department of Justice. Sure. Saying that the White House, this isn't us doing this. This is the Department of Justice, even though it's President Trump sure. and whatever. So, again, very confusing that way. Spicer is supposed to be on naval reserve duties this week. Really? Okay, he's not, he's not, not supposed to be at the White House. Like he's supposed to scrub the deck? Well, no, he's he's part of Naval Reserve, and so you go what one weekend a month and two weeks a year oh my type goodness. of thing. So he has he's supposed to be at the Pentagon fulfilling those duties, and that his uh, his assistant um, press secretary, uh, what's her name? It's it's uh, Mike Huckabee's daughter. I forget what her Sarah Huckabee. I think her name is Sarah Huckabee Sanders. That's mm-hmm. her last name. She's supposed to be filling in for him. Now, if you watch any of the press conferences this week, the afternoon media press conferences from the White House, she's the one that's conducting those press conferences. Ooh. And she's getting a lot of praise for it because really? she's not as combative as Sean Spicer is. And so the media is <laughs> like, wow, we're getting answers. And, and she we're, chews and we're not, a lot less gum, too. We're not being belittled. <laughs> the it's great. And, but so during this whole thing Tuesday night, he kind of disappeared – with his staff for a few minutes. And the Washington Post wrote that he he retreated into the bushes. Really? Like slide in and, and hide so he could talk. And Playing then, a game of hide and seek? Yeah, so they had to come back. They said he hid in the bushes with his staff late Tuesday to figure out how to deal with the reporters in the wake of the James <laughs> Comey firing, right? right? Which is a ridiculous just mental image oh, yeah. of the president's press secretary like sneaking away to be, you know. And so... They corrected it and said he was among the bushes. Oh, among the bushes. Yeah, it's a little change in the, 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 the information there. Now, it almost makes it sound like he and the bushes are one. Could be. <laughs> the problem with all this is Melissa McCarthy is hosting Saturday Night Live. Uh oh. Okay. Sean Spicer hasn't done anything crazy in a couple weeks now. So when I heard that she was going to host, I'm like, what are they going to use for material? Right. How is she going to do her Sean Spicer? skit that she does there's no material i mean the last one they kind of stretched it was easter so they put him in a bunny suit uh-huh. which he wore you know in years past with yeah. the easter egg roll but they didn't have any material he gave them all the material they need and probably something that lasted maybe 30 minutes yeah they're gonna have melissa mccarthy as john spicer standing in a bush trying to give a press conference Maybe That's the whole thing. Maybe they'll have Melissa McCarthy as Sean Spicer being interviewed by Zach Galifianakis between two ferns. Maybe they'll do it that way. I mean, there's all sort of, all he had to do was go on naval reserve duty and just yeah. stay away, and, and he would have killed. Saturday Night Live would have had no material, but now they're just so. I That's don't. the silliest thing I've ever heard. There you go. Yeah, you know, I've hidden in the bushes uh, before. Yeah. To, to get away from a girl that uh, liked me and wanted me to go out with her. There's this episode of The Simpsons 
or Homer standing there and somebody asks him a question he doesn't want to answer and he just sort of backs and slides into the bushes. <laughs> so when that came out, everyone put that little clip from YouTube out. So he's just like – it was a gift. So it was just repeating, repeating of Homer just backing up into this hedge in his yard, just kind of disappearing. And it's like all he needed to do – they said it was – this has been scheduled for months. This week is when he was supposed to be out of the White House. Sean Spicer is not going to be on TV. And then, oh, wait, Melissa McCarthy's hosting this weekend – so it looked like he, he was safe. He wasn't going to provide any more material, but he's just providing material. He blew it. He couldn't help himself. He probably took that time in his office to just get a good cry, like, this is going to be a nightmare. I don't know. Well, I, what it looks like is that they, uh, the uh, press secretary, the media liaison office, mm-hmm. to, they were not informed as to what was happening. Oh, boy. And so all of a sudden, this drops, and then they have to figure out on the fly, how do we present this message, right? Because he, he's supposed to speak for the president. Yeah. He's a spokesperson. And, and he didn't really have a lot to say because he didn't know what the thoughts were leading up to it. All he had was the same document everybody else had. Yeah. Maybe but, President Trump was like, let me, let me think about why I fired him and then I'll get back to you. I don't know. But I just <laughs> – uh, outside of all the other stuff involved with that story, I thought that was pretty funny. He had a chance. To make it so that Saturday Night Live really had to do something that was probably going to be not so funny, but he gave them all the material. Mm. Yep. Hiding in the bushes with Melissa McCarthy or but, between two ferns, yeah. between two bushes with Zach Galifianakis. Who knows? Because they, they only need five <laughs> minutes. Yeah. Right? Those skits are five minutes long. Yeah. So you don't need a lot to build on. And it's like you can see the writers of Saturday Night Live sitting in their room, their uh, you know their offices writing this stuff up. And they're like, oh, what are we going to do? And, oh, wait. He was hiding in the bushes. And then you're done. This is like a Christmas miracle for them. It is. It'll be great. <laughs> well, make sure to watch for that. So it's this Saturday that she's hosting, yes. obviously, then. Okay. Melissa McCarthy will host Saturday Night Live this Saturday. Where you can check her out as Sean Spicer. And that's one of the skits that have actually been kind of funny. Oh, yeah. Right? Everything else you Spicy kinda, Spicer. Everything else is kind of like, oh, because it's it's almost too real. Because yeah. it is. They're making fun of something, obviously, that's real. But it's like, <laughs> is this really funny? But the Spicer stuff's been funny because he just kind of looks like he's kind of unhinged sometimes. Yeah. Know? There's a vein in his forehead. And the, I mean, <laughs> I mean the... The the skit when he was on the uh, the podium and it turns into like a motorized podium yeah. and he starts running it after people. That's kind of funny. And he, he actually has pointed out several times how funny that is. Yeah, he you know, because so. he can feel the pain. Yeah. He can feel the pain. So something interesting. I, I love the, the correction from in the bushes to among the bushes. Well, it is important to make that distinction. Yeah. I wonder if someone complained about how that was characterized. And so they're like, how do we do this? Oh, wow. Well, speaking of politics and government, our next guest is going to be talking to us about the American Covenant and have we as Americans lost our purpose in life. He will help us uh, answer that question and shed some more light on that subject when we return. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who is out sick still. Uh, But uh, 
I'm lucky because now I get to speak with our next guest, Philip Gorski, who is a professor of sociology and religious studies at Yale, Yale University. He writes on religion and politics in the United States and Western Europe and currently resides in New Haven, Connecticut. And uh, he is the author of the book American Covenant, which examines the history of civil religion in America. Philip, welcome to The Matt Townsend Show. Oh, thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here, Jeff. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. Uh, so I'm curious to know, what what influence does Christianity have on our government today? Ah, well, that is a very good question. Um, you know, I, I think uh, probably uh, a diminishing influence. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, I definitely. <laughs> um, so, you know, is this... How did we start out? Because in your book, you talk about how, you know, Terry, our producer, just brought up a good point that, you know, there's this mentality of, you know, our country was founded on all these religious values, and that's why everybody came here. So tell us a little bit more about your book and and maybe why that line of thinking is not 100% correct. Yeah, I think really the the central message of the book uh, is that the United States was founded um, on a combination of religious and, and secular values. And so there's some folks who say America was founded as a Christian nation, or uh, all of uh, American values derived from uh, the Judeo-Christian tradition. Then there are other folks who say, no, no, America was founded as a secular democracy. All of our values derive uh, from the Enlightenment or from some other non-religious source. And uh, what I'm really trying to show in the book is uh, that uh, it's always been a combination of, of uh, secular and religious values from the Puritans right right up to the present, and to show uh, the way in which those uh, two strands have been interwoven in our national history and also the way in which that, uh, that com- combination of sacred and secular creates a kind of a broad open space where religious and secular people could engage with each other if they wanted to. Interesting. So it's kind of a combination of the two. So at, at what point have things what at what point did things begin to kind of drift away from that? Uh is there is there a specific moment in, in history or has it just been a very gradual thing over the years? You know, I think I think it's been a, a back and forth to be honest with you. Uh you know, there there have been moments where uh, you know, sort of the, the 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 more kind of religious interpretation of U.S. history has been more in the ascendancy, and the secular interpretation has been more in the in the ascendancy. But uh, you know, I, I think um, we could probably all agree that there has been an increasing polarization over the last thirty or or, or forty years. Um, you know, to the point at which. Uh, Really, uh, a lot of religious people look at secular people as as the enemy, and and vice versa, and uh, are more apt to get in uh, shouting matches than engage in civil dialogue with each other. And that is that is the worry, really, that motivates the book. Right. Talk to us a little bit about political correctness. And do you believe our current culture of of being PC? Do you think that's limiting politicians? Is it limiting religious leaders? Well, I, I have kind of mixed feelings about political correctness. So um, on the one hand, I think part of what people are striving for is, uh, you know, sort of greater inclusion of, of people who uh, have been marginalized or overlooked in uh, oftentimes in, in our society. 
But on the other hand, uh, if inclusion is one of our core values, then freedom is certainly another. And, uh, you know, insofar as people who are arguing for inclusion are uh, kind of refusing to let other people speak and refusing to listen to them, that, that's a problem. And so I think it's not, I don't want to say it's an easy thing to do to kind of strike that balance between freedom and, and inclusion, but I think that's that's what we need to be thinking about and trying to do. So what is the compromise? I mean, let's let's take a look at issues like abortion, gay rights. Is there a compromise on issues that can combine both secular and religious values? Well, I think certainly there are, are some values like that where it's not entirely easy to, to see right now where, where the political compromise would be. I mean, you know, in... in in theory, sure, there would be, uh, you know, middle middle ground between those. I mean, you could have policies that are more oriented towards uh, reducing the number of abortions in, in the country or, uh, you know, making it easier for people uh, to take care of, of small children, right? Those would be uh, things that would get uh, potentially get both sides a little bit closer to, to what they want without totally giving up. But I, I'd not going to, you know, I'm not politically naive. I know that a compromise like that would be very, very difficult uh, at the moment. There's no doubt about that. Um, I think there may be other issues uh, where folks could uh, possibly find more common ground, and sometimes I wish uh, that we would focus a bit more on those. My favorite example of this would be the opioid addiction crisis, which I think is uh, just a, you know, enormous, enormous, enormous tragedy uh, that you know, I certainly see here in the in the Northeast, uh, and you know, which is ravaging many parts of the United States right now, and we just uh, don't seem to be able to get our act together to do anything about it. Even though I think people uh, from all across the political spectrum, across the religious secular divide, would agree that this is a really horrible crisis that we need to do something about. Interesting. The opioid. Uh, uh, so, uh, any any other specific examples in your book that you talk about in in these terms? Well, sure. Uh, you know, like, what about, uh, so one of my, here, uh, I, I may be just dreaming, but, uh, you know, I think if if I could just push for one reform um, in the U.S. right now that I think would, uh, that would improve our politics in the long run, um, it would be instituting a, a system of national service uh, for young people, uh, you know, people sort of in that 18 to, to 23 or 25 age bracket, because I think part of the problem is uh, it's not just that there are sort of ideological divides between folks. I mean, there are geographical and spatial divides between folks. There's uh, lots of evidence that we just keep sorting ourselves into smaller and smaller enclaves, and we just don't really know people who are very different from us or are much less likely to encounter people who are very different from us than, than we used to be. And that just makes it hard to, to trust other folks. And so if you had a system of national service where people are, maybe they're serving the armed forces, uh, you know, maybe they're uh, doing work on infrastructure projects, maybe they're working in a drug treatment program, but they're working together side by side with, uh, you know, folks from all different walks of American life. Uh, and I think that would pay, pay back kind of lifelong dividends in, in, our, in our civic culture. Interesting. So uh, talk to us a little bit about freedom. What does what does freedom mean to you or what does freedom look like to you? 
Well, I, I have a kind of an old-school understanding of freedom. So I think, uh, I think if, uh, if you or I walked out of the radio studio right now and just uh, kind of asked the first person on the street that we bumped into, well, what do you think freedom is? They would probably say something like, doing what I want to do or not having any limitations on me or being able to fulfill all my desires. I, I don't think that's a, a very good understanding of freedom. I think that's a really thin understanding of freedom, and it's not the one, in fact, that I think this country was founded on. It was That's an older idea of freedom, freedom that means that, uh, you know, part of it is uh, being a master of your own self and your own desires, being able to kind of order your own, uh, your own emotions and your own desires. Uh, it's, it, part of it is also uh, the older sense of being an active citizen, you know, kind of political freedom, going out and engaging in the public sphere. It could be electoral politics or it could just be a community center down the street from you. It could be in your church or, you know, whatever other organization you belong to. That's, those are, for me, really the two key aspects of this older idea of freedom and not just getting whatever you want, which I, I think is a kind of a, um, you know, it's, it's a newer and thinner and, I think, less satisfactory understanding of what freedom really is. Yeah. Okay, now same question, but let's let's talk about religious freedom. What sure. what does that look like right now and what do you what do you feel like it should look like? Mm. Well, there's a, as you know, uh there's a lot of debate about this right now and um you know, I think here it's really important to understand that uh our our, our founding fathers kind of left us with a contradictory program. So if some people say, well, you know, separation of church and state, that's in the Constitution, right? Well, yes and no. Uh, you know, what's in the Constitution is uh, no establishment of religion and free exercise of religion. And if you think about it, those two principles are kind of intention and potentially at odds with each other. Um, so the way that we've usually solved this is to think about individual freedom, especially individual freedom of conscience. Um, and I think a lot, what a lot of the issues uh, revolve around right now, uh, religious freedom issues, are kind of collective or uh, corporate uh, freedom of religion. So, for example, does uh, you know a, a church or a religious body uh, have a right to decide over you know whom their whose marriage they're going to sanctify, uh, who they're going to employ in their daycare centers, um, you know who they're going to ordain as as clergy, those kinds of issues. And uh, I mean those are those are you see what I'm saying. Those are in some ways issues that speak more to uh, you know the freedom of a of a body of believers. And I don't have a great you know I'm not a trained lawyer. Um, uh, I think those are those. That's a new set of issues, and I, I think the I think the courts uh, and the legal scholars are just really starting to confront this and trying to figure it out right now. So I think that's really the the terrain that we're that we're in right now, which is sort of new terrain legally. Yeah, and th- these are really tough questions. But uh, according to your book, it, it makes it seem like. You know, there isn't necessarily this mentality of our country was built on these religious values and, you know, it's all there in the Constitution. So it seems like there's a bit of misunderstanding on the part on the part of a lot of American citizens then. 
Well, I would agree with you about that. You know, so I think um, I think that uh, there is a kind of a reasonable kind of secularism and a less reasonable kind of secularism. And the reasonable kind says institutional separation of, of church and state. Um, easier said than done, but, you know, the idea that the government shouldn't favor, you know, one religious group uh, over another and, um, you know, we should be careful uh, about uh, influence going the other direction as well. Uh, but um, on the other hand, I think there are some folks who want to say, well, you know, we this means like a total separation of religion politics. It means when religious people come out into the public square that, you know, they have to speak in some kind of neutral language of reason. And that, I think, is not a reasonable kind of secularism because what that's really saying is, uh, you know, secular pre- people have their language, religious people have their language, and that is secular people saying, well, religious people have to speak in our language and we don't need to learn theirs. And if you see what I'm saying, I think there's that way of understanding it is, is kind of fundamentally unfair to, to people of faith. Um, so I think we need, to, we, we need to kind of keep this idea of uh, reasonable versus unreasonable kind of secularism in mind when we, we have these discussions. That's really interesting too. It, it's it's kind of you see it in a lot of politicians too, where they're they're trying this balancing act of you know they want to they want to show that they're for the separation of church and state, but also they want to make it clear that they believe in God, and so you know they're very careful about what language they use, and you know I, I know a lot of people criticized President Trump because. You know, he he went to church when when he was going to be inaugurated, and it seems like that was the first time he'd ever been to church. So it is interesting. Uh, uh, Philip, let's do this. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk to you a little bit more about your book and uh, specifically a couple of the ideas that you mentioned in your book. We'll do just that. We'll take a break, and we'll continue the discussion with Philip Gorski here on The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We're speaking with Philip Gorski, who's the author of the book American Covenant, uh, which examines the history of civil religion in America. Philip, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Oh, it's good to be back. Good to be here. So, Philip, I'm curious to know, uh, tell us a little bit about the background of of how you became interested in this topic and, and specifically this book and the idea behind this book and the title, too. Sure, absolutely. So, uh, I uh, studied under Robert Bella, who the late Berkeley sociologist. Uh, and he published 50 years ago now, 1967, a very famous essay called uh, "The American Civil Religion," and uh, made a, made an argument that's a lot like the the one that I'm making. Uh, it was very controversial at the time, and uh, he later came to feel, though, that this American civil religious tradition was really kind of dying. Um, and uh, in 1976, uh, at the bicentennial, he even said that uh, it's a, quote, empty and broken shell. And this was in a book called The Broken Covenant, which he published that year. Uh, and I, in 2008, in uh, some, of the, some of the presidential campaign in particular, and um, some of Barack Obama's speeches, 
sort of heard echoes of that civil religious tradition. And uh, that's what got me interested in the topic. As you mentioned, I hadn't originally set out to write a book about the United States. It wasn't really my field of study, uh, but got inspired to, uh, to kind of delve a little bit deeper and try to figure out just exactly what it was that uh, that uh, Obama was uh, was echoing there, you know, what he was picking up on, the tradition that he was kind of trying to revive. And um, then it ended up not really being so much about him, but being about uh, the tradition in the end. So that's how I came to write the book. So earlier in the program, we talked about uh, the definition of freedom or your idea of of what freedom is and and what a lot of people think it is. Do you think that uh, we're going to continue to see a shift uh, in regards to that definition of freedom, or do you think our country is going to be more uh, realigned with what that definition is? Well, it's, it's, it's an open question. You know, I think uh, social scientists tend to get in trouble when they make predictions, so I'm not going not gonna to make any <laughs> predictions. Uh, but I think, what I, I think what I would say is that it really it, it's vital for us to recover uh, that older understanding of freedom or else our experiment in uh, our Republican experiment, our experiment in democracy is, is going to come to an end because you, uh, democracy requires... Um, virtuous citizens who are willing to work together for the common good and, and to make compromises with each other, even when that's really, really hard. Uh, and if all you have is a bunch of people who are clamoring about their individual rights all the time and have no sense of any kind of obligations to their, to their fellow citizens, uh, then that, that government is not long for this world. So let's let's continue on with that thought. How do we fix that? Because, you know, we've got people that are talking about religious their religious rights. You have people that are talking about their civil rights, and it seems like a lot of times they're just talking past each other and not talking together. How do we get them to engage in that conversation together and be willing to fix this and, and work together on these issues? Well, one thing I said was this idea about establishing a system of national service. I, I think the other thing that would be really, really important is uh, for uh, there to be a renewal of civic engagement, and I'm using civic here really in the in the old sense of really local, your city, your community, um, you know, your locality or region, um, and that uh, the people really do this in a way where they're they're uh, kind of really trying to reach out to people who are different from them and work together with them on some common project. I think. Uh, it doesn't have to be something big or grand. It doesn't have to be something that's going to, you know, change the course of history or anything like that. It could just be a park or a school or, uh, you know, some kind of a shelter or a drug treatment center or whatever it, whatever it would happen to be. Uh, I think, um, you know, when people work together like that, that uh, often creates enough trust that they can begin to talk together, at least uh, respectfully, even if they don't end up always agreeing about about everything. So I think that's that's the other thing that would really be needful now is, is that kind of civic reengagement. So this is such a, a difficult topic to cover because, you know, you have people that, that want to keep their religious uh, beliefs intact and their religious rights intact, and then you have people that want to keep their civil rights in, intact. Is there, I mean, do they... The people involved in this conversation, do they know 
what the end goal is. Do they? Is there a way for them to come to some sort of a compromise that doesn't uh, that doesn't take away from their religious rights or compromise their morals or beliefs? And then the same to be said of those on, in the civil discussion. Is there a, a way that they can come to a, a compromise? Uh, you know, I, I, as I said, I think that uh, in, in theory, compromise, uh, hard compromises on, on some of these issues, political compromises, uh, would be possible if there were, were enough trust between people, which there isn't right now. And so I think, you know, in a way that the prior problem is to think about what we could do to, to recreate some measure of trust amongst people. And that's the reason for my proposing that people get more locally engaged and uh, that we maybe think about some kind of a system of, of national service. I will add, though, that, uh, you know, I do see a lot of encouraging signs uh, amongst, uh, amongst the younger generation. Um, uh, you know, I see a lot more uh, willingness uh, uh, for folks to sort of work across some of these old uh, divides in the so-called culture wars. Uh, I'm thinking about uh, you know, a lot of sort of uh, young evangelicals and young progressives in places like Portland, Oregon, you know, where the mayor uh, was a very secular, very progressive guy, uh, you know, found common cause and worked together with a lot of local, young local evangelical groups uh, to just to get some nuts and bolts stuff done in the city because he found areas where he could work together with those people. I think that uh, that's, you know, that's the kind of model that we have to strive for. Um, you know, uh, it's only that's the only way we're ever going to get to a point where we might be able to compromise on some of these tougher issues. Yeah, and it is tough because you know you have you have uh, religious leaders that are are interested in having these conversations, but you know they're kind of also being pushed up against the wall and being pressured to maybe even change doctrine, which is something that I would imagine is not as easy. Uh, I wonder if there is a compromise that that doesn't compromise the doctrine. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what is uh, that's that's something that I really that's a question I really have to to punt on and uh, turn over to the theologians who are who are the folks who can really figure out you know what uh, what is a compromise of doctrine and and what is a, a kind of an extension or rereading of a doctrine. Uh, yeah, not a trained theologian either, so. <laughs> Well, you gave us a couple of of ideas of what we can do to start locally and and just have these conversations with each other. Anything else that you would uh, in closing? What is something that we can do today to head in the dire- in the right direction? Well, I, I, another thing I think that would be important is just uh, you know for people to kind of you know get outside of uh the the narratives that they have about the United States and to to realize uh, the kind of complexities and understand the contributions the good contributions that both religious and secular people have made so i think there's a lot of secular folks out there who just think well you know religion poisons everything uh you know uh, religion hasn't made any good contributions to the history of the United States and you know, they're forgetting about, not just about the Puritans and the Revolution, they're forgetting about abolition, they're forgetting about the civil rights struggle, for example, which would not have happened without uh, religious ideals and religious leaders to push those things forward. Uh, but I think it's also important for religious folks uh, to understand that 
a lot of the the principles that uh, that our country is founded on. Um, you know, the the kind of institutional principles are things that go all the way back to ancient Greece and Rome, and uh, you know, predate Christianity. And those have been really important to the success of our democracy up until now. And so I think part of it is really just you know, kind of opening up and and realizing uh, that a lot of our narratives about the about the United States are kind of half right. That's so interesting, Philip. I, we, I want to thank you again for being on the show. We really appreciate your time. Uh, make sure to check out Philip Gorsky's book, American Covenant, where he examines the history of civil religion in America. And uh, again, we appreciate your insight, Philip. And uh, Interesting topic and tough questions to try to answer, but uh, let's just do what we can today to try to, to do that and have these conversations so that we can head in the right direction. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll, con- we'll continue the discussion here on The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We just finished up a very interesting conversation with Philip Gorski, who uh, is the author of the book American Covenant. And uh, yeah, we threw around a lot of really difficult questions to answer, but uh, very interesting topic. So be sure to check out that book. Terry, anything else that we uh, should be talking about? Let me give you a choice. Okay. We have what is being termed shocking Steve Harvey news. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Or, is, or we have a dinosaur named after a character from the Ghostbuster movie. Oh. Ooh. Steve Harvey. Steve Harvey News. So Steve <laughs> Harvey, he has a daytime talk show. Yes. Um, which is, I don't know what it's called, but it's going to be reframed and called uh, Steve Harvey. Or no, Steve. I don't know. Whatever. Steve. They're changing the name. He, he usually shoots it in Chicago. They're moving into Los Angeles. All this is going on. So um, he he has this new deal. Can have his thing. So he sends out this letter. Um, he does well, he does celebrity. He does a celebrity family feud. He does little big shots. He does all these different shows. You see right. him all over the place. He hosts Miss America pageants and yeah. stuff. Well, he so he sends out this memo to his family. Or not his family, but to his uh, his staff that he works with, and it has to do with how they're to interact with him. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, this gets leaked, and then you read it, and you're like, "Oh!" And I, it's just it's interesting okay. stuff. It says, "Good morning, everyone. Welcome back. I'd like you all to review and adhere to the following notes and rules for season five of my talk show. There will be no meetings in my dressing room. No one stopping by or popping in. No one. That's in capital letters. No one. Wow." Do not come to my dressing room unless invited. Do not open my dressing room door. If you open my door, expect to be removed. Again, all in capitals. <laughs> Makes it sound like he's got a, a bouncer in there or something that will physically remove you. My security team will ah, stop everyone go. from standing at my door who have the intent to seek to see or speak to me. So if you so instead hmm. of opening the door, if you just stand next to the door, the security team will remove you. Wow. Don't stand next to my door. Uh, I, I want all the ambushing to stop now. That includes my TV staff. Whoa. But he hosts a TV show. The TV staff would be bringing business to him. So he doesn't want any interaction with the people that are trying to talk to him about his <laughs> I, show. I, I don't know. He goes, okay. you must schedule a, an appointment. Interesting. 
He goes, I have been, I have been taken advantage uh, by my lenient policy in the past. This ends now, and again in capitals, no more. So, Not doing this. But he doesn't mention anything specific like, I I need my time to prepare for the show. Do or... not approach me while I'm in the makeup chair unless I ask to speak directly with you. Either knock or use the doorbell. I'm not sure what that means. He's got a doorbell? <laughs> he also said don't come to the door unless you have an appointment. So, yeah. um, it says, I am seeking more free time for me throughout the day. Okay. Do not wait in the hallway to speak to me. I hate being ambushed. Please make an appointment. I promise you I will not entertain you in the hallway and do not attempt to walk with me. Interesting. If you're reading this, hmm. yes, I mean you. <laughs> <laughs> so he only sent it to the people that were the offenders, maybe. I don't know. The, wow. The, the, the memo, this is out of the Hollywood Report, or the Variety, excuse me, out of Variety, and this says it went to his entire TV staff. Yeah, I think he's trying to make it clear that there are no exceptions. Like, you yeah. don't, don't think that you aren't the one I'm talking to. Literally, no one is allowed to come up like this to me. Yeah. And he says, everyone, do not take offense to the new way of doing business. It is, good, it is for my, it is for the good of my personal life and enjoyment. Okay. I will I will say that I'm sympathetic to the one part where he says I will not entertain you in the hallways. Yes. I think there's this mentality uh of people walk. It's called the walk and talk. Yeah. He doesn't no, want to do that. Well, no, like if if you're an entertainer Aaron Sorkin invented that one. Yeah. <laughs> people just assume that you're going to be on all the time and right. that you're funny everywhere you go. Mm-hmm. And the reality is, you know, a lot of those people are kind of introverts and just want to be left alone. So maybe that's Steve Harvey. Hmm. I don't know. Just it seems sort of, sort of rough. Seems a little harsh to you. Yeah, I, I think Matt would want to go there, but doesn't doesn't feel comfortable going that far. Right. But, but I mean, at the same Matt time, Matt is always on. He wants people to come in, come in, sit down, and talk to him in his office. But there's times where he's like, "Yeah, I'm just going to shut this door and have some me time." Yeah. Uh no, I get it. So it's a little to harsh a, to an extent. But I, I agree. It's a little rough. Wow. Anyway, to each his own, to there each artist his own. Thanks for that, Terry. Oh, my goodness. Maybe he just wants to make sure he's never going to flub up again with uh, a name. We'll take a break. And, you know, if you see anybody here at the Matt Townsend Show, you can talk to us. We'll say hi. We'll entertain you. But... uh Yeah, wow, sounds a little harsh. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll continue the fun here on The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Thursday morning. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We are once again Dr. Mattless. I'm Jeff Simpson here with Terry South and Cole Wissinger. And, uh, you know, I'm a little sad that nobody uh, brought in some food today because it is Eat What You Want Day. Eat What You Want Day was created by Thomas and Ruth Roy of WellCat.com to help people break away from the frustrating health and diet trends of our times, if only for one day, and just let go and enjoy life for a little. Most nutritionists seem to agree that giving yourself a break every now and again can actually be good for us. 
and that forcing ourselves to eat only low-calorie, tasteless foods for prolonged periods of time is likely to cause us to suddenly gorge on everything in sight when our determination wears off. Which is exactly what happens with me anytime I show, uh, you know, some willpower. I do it a little too to the extreme, a little too much, and uh, then I just celebrate Eat What You Want Day. Pelikiko's still sitting in that producer booth, leaning back without Oreos. Yeah, the hands. fireworks Oreos. For third day in a row. We should be eating right now. Cole, what are you going to eat on Eat What You Want Day? Um, I will eat whatever I can find in my fridge, because that's eat what you can find in your fridge every day for... The college life that I live. <laughs> so ramen noodles, Campbell's soup. Frozen chicken. There's a lot yeah. of frozen chicken in the freezer. Mm. Of all sorts of varieties. You, can, you wouldn't believe the sorts of things you can come up with with like six different kinds of frozen chicken. There's the bone <laughs> in, the bone out, the tenders. That's true. The nuggets. Ground the chicken. Grilled cubes. The all sorts. Terry, the only food I know that you indulge in like once a year is a small bowl of Doritos. It's at not Super a bowl. small bowl. Oh, it's not. It's like a whole bag. It's like a bag. Okay, but, but that's it, once it lasts, a year. It lasts over a couple of weeks. I don't just. It's not like <laughs> I used to just plow through bags. But yeah, I, I I've have you know self control now. But yeah, I don't usually purchase that because I don't have any self control really. So the day of the Super Bowl is actually your eat what you want day. Pretty much. Okay. And I I don't live that strictly, but when it comes to that specific product, yeah, it's just that once. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, for the most part, it's just – it's a chip. But for some reason, I have this sort of problem. And I've acknowledged the problem. I think the advertising gets you. Doritos has some of the oh, best Super Bowl ads. It does. You're leading up to it. So You know, a good way to get hooked on a food like that is to just leave the country for a couple of years where you don't have access to anything like Doritos or McDonald's, things you never would have considered eating. Right. And then when somebody sends you a bag in the mail – you just burn through the whole bag like that, and then you're hooked, yeah. Because uh, you've you've tasted it. Oh, Cool Ranch or Nacho Cheese doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Wow. Just not the plain ones. I will say I'm I am so so lucky that Costco does not carry the Nacho Cheese mm. flavor because I'd be in huge trouble. I usually get the whatever spicy thing they come out with that year. Oh yeah, they don't really. Ch- it's not the flavor doesn't really change that much. I just want it something more, get something with a kick, right? Something yeah, with the spice to it, the salsa verde, and it's not really hot. It's just it's a different flavor. Yeah, mm. but I, I go to my brother's house and my nephews will will ooh Doritos, so they grab one and they run around the house with their mouth on fire. I'm like, come on, guys, it's not that hot, but to them it is. So. Oh. It, it is fun to watch kids like rile in pain because they ate something they shouldn't have. Maybe that's how I can get my kids to not eat my Doritos. Yeah, just get a little, little bit of more, <laughs> more spicy and they'll stay away. Oh, good stuff. We, uh, we've got uh, some interesting topics coming up here on the Matt Townsend Show. This hour, we're going to be speaking with a, a, our guest, Eric Barker, who's going to be talking to us about what success looks like. And uh, the next hour, we're going to be talking to a guest who's talking to us about what happiness looks like. Hmm. But uh, first and foremost, let's head over to you, Terry, and find out what's going on around the rest of the country. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said Wednesday that the state will allow testing of autonomous vehicles on public roads, potentially leaving perplexed New Yorkers wondering 
who to uh, yell at when they jaywalk in front of a car without a driver. So we're taking care uh, a careful yet balanced approach to incorporate autonomous vehicles on our roads to reduce dangerous driving habits, decrease the number of accidents, and save lives on New York roadways, Cuomo said in a statement. New York is accepting applications from companies interested in testing the vehicles through a year-long pilot program. New York's program requires manufacturers to adhere to a number of oversight measures and restrictions that could raise objections from an industry that prefers prefers private, real-world testing. Companies in New York must have a $5 million insurance policy, submit reports to the state, be overseen by the state police, and pay the state police for supervising each test. Testing also cannot take place in construction or school zones, which takes up huge swaths of land in New York City and must adhere to a pre-designed or pre-designated route shared in advance with the state. Hmm. So it sounds like they will continue testing in Arizona, where they don't have any of that. <laughs> yeah, New York, seem, New York City seems like the Super Bowl of getting your self-driving car out there. Like, you yeah. got to start small, work your way up. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's a pretty tough city. Lots of traffic, lots of confined spaces. Arizona, you might just want to leave it out there for a while. And, oh, yeah. And Nevada allows them to do some testing also. Not, not so many restrictions. You don't have to be, like, under... It looks like It sounds like they have to be under police escort. Wow. To drive the car around. It's what it looks mm. like because it says you have to have the police with you and tell them in advance and have a pre-designated route. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Whereas in Arizona, they're like, yeah, go ahead. I mean, they're, they're right now, Google's testing minivans, and they wanted people to uh, – there was some website you could go to to sign up, and then they would come pick you up, and you would be part of their program to drive you around in a driverless car. Oh, yeah, there's a lot more space in Arizona. I guess. Um, other news, an outbreak of measles has sickened 51 people, is stretching public health departments thin and costing hundreds of thousands of dollars, officials said Wednesday. Minnesota Health Commissioner Ed Ellinger uh, asked the state legislature for $5 million for an emergency fund to deal with the outbreak and other infectious diseases such as Zika and syphilis. In recent months, state and local public health officials have had to respond to a series of infectious disease outbreaks in the state of Minnesota, including multi-drug-resistant tuberculosis, hundreds of new cases of syphilis, and now the largest measles outbreak in the state in the past, what, in over 30 years. And they said... Uh, Measles outbreaks are especially costly to deal with because of the in- intensive follow-up that is needed for each case. Measles, one of the most infectious viruses known, it can hang in the air of a room for two hours after an infected person leaves. Wow. So 90% of people who are not vaccinated will catch measles if they are not exposed. It's that potent, right? Seems like it would uh, stick around a little longer in our studio here. Yeah, could be. That means state and local health officials have to track down hundreds of people for every confirmed case. If you mm. have a person, anyone that walks into that space for the next two hours has to be interviewed, maybe checked to see right. if they have any symptoms to try to stop those people from spreading it to oh. other people. And it all comes back to people not getting vaccinated. What a nightmare to and deal Min- with that. Minnesota's like, oh, we got to do, you know, yeah. chase these kind of things down. And then you have other infectious diseases that are resistant to multiple drugs. And that's just it just makes it into a bigger problem. So wow. they're dealing with some issues there in Minnesota. Um, if you have ever if you have an unreasonable fear of escalators, are you afraid of escalators? I have frequent dreams that an escalator or no, escalator. No, I've had dreams about elevators where right. the elevator is not working properly. But not escalators. No. Any fear of an escalator well, is an unreasonable fear right. of an well, escalator. Well, you know, there's that small fear that, you know, you're 
if anything gets snagged at the bottom, that you no. could get sucked under. Now, my kid's always afraid, but yeah, he's afraid he's going to get caught in the machine, basically. <laughs> so if you have an unreasonable fear of escalators, there may be something to it, but the problem involves looking at one, not stepping on it. Researchers report in the Journal of Current Biology that just looking at the grid, geometric pattern of, stri- of stripes, even still images of them, affects our brain in a way that is, in extreme cases, can produce seizures and migraines. Really? Objects that as seemingly as innocuous as a radiator grill can be pro, pro oh, provocative. Uh, one expert tells the Telegraph, and patients with uh, pattern-sensitive epilepsies have to cover them as a preventive measure. Vertical orientation of stripes are in generally general worse than horizontal, says one researcher. Examples of stripe patterns that are potentially uh, provocative in daily life are rolling stairs, Venetian blinds, striped clothes, and buildings. While the exact reason why is still a mystery, scientists say that striped patterns increase our brain's gamma oscillations, which are linked to both headaches and seizures. One hypothesis is that because the extreme regularity of things like blinds and escalators do not exist in nature, so that the straight lines don't exist, everything has a randomness to it. But when we make these things, they're they're extremely, the straight angles, and that doesn't work well with our brain for some reason. I guess I've never heard of a fear of patterns before. Even the stripes of zebras, if you think about it, they're not straight. They're just kind of, they're they're kind of, I mean, they they have some uniform to them, but they're zigzag a little bit too, and they're, they're rough edges, they're not straight lines. He goes, our brains have not evolved to cope with the straight lines. And in some cases, it causes people to have a reaction to it. That is so bizarre. But based on what you've told us, it sounds like if we have that fear, maybe we just need to walk around with our heads turned to the side because the horizontal lines aren't as bad as the vertical lines. Right. Yeah. Or, I don't know. Then go to the chiropractor once a week. Maybe talk to somebody or just don't look at the radiator anymore. <laughs> Finally, your dream home could await in Casey, South Carolina, if you don't mind living in the same home as a mysterious stranger who is rarely seen and doesn't pay rent. Hmm. There is no truth uh, bending to a real estate ad for the $130,000 property. It's listed on Zillow if you want to look at it. It warns that buyers will have to assume responsibility for a tenant who lives rent-free in an apartment on the upper floor of the four-bedroom home. Upstairs apartment cannot be shown under any circumstances, the listing states. Occupant has never paid, and no security deposit is being held. But there is but there is a lease in place. And then in parentheses, yes, it does not make sense. Please don't bother asking. This is scary to me because I'm watching Fargo right now, and yes. this is kind of similar to a, a, a storyline that's happening on that show. And it says the home has quite a few other peculiarities, including a large hole in the roof, a weird statue in the backyard, and a door covered in splatter of what can only hope is red paint. Hmm. So there's a possibility that this guy is the phantom of the opera. Yeah. But he, the phantom of the, the home. He lives upstairs. He does not pay rent, but he has the lease. So, okay, <laughs> great. Sounds a bit shady. I don't, I don't know if that house is going to sell well. Would you consider living there? No. But maybe no. he has good curb appeal. You don't know. Oh, you got, yeah. You don't underestimate the curb appeal. Right. Cole, would you live there? I'm concerned about the hole in the roof. Yeah, I would probably ask for that to be fixed. Maybe but, the you previous know, owners. If it rains, it's going to rain on him, right? Because he's got the top. Depends on the if it's in that part of the house. Okay. Yeah. Ooh. So that might be a problem. With the weird statue in the backyard, eh, I knows? can handle that. We can see what that is. But yeah, that's you can replace a door if it has red mm-hmm. paint on it. 
That's a bit creepy. But you got a guy upstairs, and you're not allowed to really interact or talk to him. <laughs> but he lives there, and you have to deal with that. I'm like, I think I'll find a different house. So here's something else that's scary. Are either one of you – have you ever gotten in your car and decided to drive either barefoot or with flip-flops on? No. No. And You've always got shoes. Every morning. <gasps> every morning? Flip-flops or barefoot? Uh, either. Yeah, sure. Okay. Listen to this, Cole. This is this is a, a you're going to want to yeah. scare me straight. Okay. A Florida woman who backed her car up through her neighbor's home blames the whole thing on her flip flops. The unidentified female driver of Fort Walton Beach was backing up in her Ford Freestyle early Friday morning when she said her foot slipped off the brake and got stuck under the gas pedal, causing her vehicle to crash through the home across the street. Her car plowed through the front window of the home and ended up in the living room only 20 feet from the kitchen, where a boy in the home was eating cereal. No one in the home was injured. Can you imagine just leaning over your bowl of Cap'n Crunch and all of a sudden somebody comes crashing through? Well, first off, there's the, the terror of Captain Crunch ripping the top of your mouth apart. I know. Every that. bite is... But then, yeah. yeah, then you have the car come through the front of your house. That would be terrifying. Ooh. It'd be a rough morning for that poor child. So, have you learned your lesson, Cole? I think so. I've I've heard the story <laughs> where if you drive barefoot, um, someone accidentally like stepped on a bee mm. that was on the gas or on one of the pedals, and so they freaked out and pressed the other pedal and, and crashed in that way. Because I used to also drive barefoot, you know, whenever I just I don't know, I don't like shoes. Yeah, you know, another fear of mine, uh, which is why I would never ever go skydiving, you know, because. First of all, I don't like that feeling on my stomach of weightlessness. And then what if the parachute doesn't open? Uh, But listen to this. Danish police say a small plane with an entangled skydiver hanging under the aircraft for about an hour was able to land safely and that the jumper only sustained bruises. Police spokesman said the uh, Cessna 182 landed Wednesday evening on foam spread out by firefighters to cushion a grassy area at an airfield northwest of Copenhagen. The pilot said he had failed to cut the static line attached at one end to the aircraft and at the other end to the top of the jumper's deployment bag. He added the landing was possible because the 45-year-old jumper stayed calm and those on the ground helped. I don't think I could stay calm after an hour under an airplane like that, just stuck. That would freak me out. And airplanes go fast. I mean, even if you slowed up a little bit because you know you have a man dangling from you. Right. You're still rocketing through the sky. It's very cold in the sky. I'm guessing this man has no tear ducts left. You know, he's probably never going to cry ever, ever again. Um, Wow. You know, my next door neighbor has a son whose whose, uh, parachute didn't deploy and he lived. He just walked away with like a concussion. Yeah. Makes no sense to me. So just a couple of reasons why I will never go skydiving. Never. Which is interesting because when I'm asked what my superpower would be, I often say it would be to fly. Well, if you could fly, you wouldn't need a parachute. Uh, yeah, but I don't, I don't uh, have confidence in my flying skills. Anyway, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with our guest who will be talking to us about finding success and what that really means when we return. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. You know, finding success and being happy with life can be tough. Many times we get in the way of our own goals and become the stumbling block that keeps us from achieving our dreams. Our next guest, Eric Barker, is the creator of the blog Barking Up the Wrong Tree, which presents science-based answers and expert insight on how to be awesome at life. His work has been mentioned in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Atlantic Monthly, Time Magazine, The Week, and Business Insider. He is a former Hollywood screenwriter, having worked on projects for Walt Disney Pictures, 20th Century Fox, and Revolution Studios. He's a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania and holds an MBA from Boston College and a Master of Fine Arts from UCLA. Eric's new book, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, The Surprising Science Behind Why Everything You Know About Success is Mostly Wrong, draws on research and statistics so you can stop guessing at success and start living the life you want. Eric, welcome to The Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for having me on. So uh, barking up the wrong tree, you know, it's a phrase that we hear quite often, and it's the name of your blog, but uh, it's one of those phrases that I don't really know where it came from. Can you tell us a little bit about about that first? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, just a common phrase that means you're, you're, looking, at, you're looking at the wrong place to find something, and I think that's, that's reflective of, of what I've talked about in the book, which is that, you know, these maxims of success we have were were are often oversimplified or not backed by by research or by or by a expert opinion we're we're kind of looking in the wrong direction for answers interesting so so tell us a little bit more about your book and do uh do the ideas in your book kind of stem from your blog yeah for the blog i usually uh i look at academic research or talk to uh talk to scholars uh or experts in their field to try and get uh answers on you know, a lot of issues we deal with in terms of happiness, productivity, parenting, relationships, et cetera. Uh, the book is specifically focused on success and, and even more specifically, uh, those pithy maxims that we, we all grew up with. Nice guys finish last. It's not what you know, it's who you know. Winners never quit. Quitters never win. We, we hear these things and, you know, we, we assume they are true, but I think we've all seen exceptions. And so basically, I kind of went down the rabbit hole in the research, talked to experts, and, and see if these are true, when are they true, when are they not true, and, and how can we kind of better apply a more accurate version to our lives. Sure. So if you were to just ask a, a random person what their idea of success is, what, do you, what kind of an answer do you think you would get? I think most people would probably be uh, disproportionately you know, thinking about career or money, but in the book, I'm talking about, you know, basically life success, which is, which is achieving the goals in whatever sphere you're interested in. I can, I think you can be, you can be a successful investment banker. You can also be a, a, you know, a successful parent. Uh, it's really about kind of aligning what you, what the skills you have, the interests you have and where you want to go. Yeah. And, you know, you, you gave a couple of examples of these maxims that people use, um, regarding success. And uh, you mention in your book that much of the advice that we've been told about achievement is logical, earnest, and downright wrong. Now, why is that the case? Well, for instance, in the nice guys finish last uh, category, uh, we there's research from uh, Adam Grant at Wharton at the University of Pennsylvania, 
that shows that it's not that nice guys finish last. Uh, Adam refers to them as givers, people who altruistically help others without thinking about uh, reciprocity. Uh, they do disproportionately show up at the bottom of success metrics. However, it turns out that the results are bimodal. They are disproportionately at the bottom and disproportionately at the top. So what you see is that, yes, some, some nice guys are, are martyrs who get walked on or exploited, but some of them are the same people we all know who go out of their way to help people. Everyone feels indebted to them, respects them, and those people do disproportionately well, uh, too. So it's, it's not as simple as nice guys finish last. Sure. Do you, in your book, do you present any maxims that maybe are a little more accurate than, than the examples you've already given us? Um, I mean, again, it's, it's often, uh, often it's not, it's not one size fits all, you know, all of them need to be tailored to some degree, uh, to your skill set uh, or to context. Uh, you know, so for instance, when you look at the, uh, <clears throat> the maxim of it's not what you know, it's who, you know, what you see is that extroverts, uh, do incredibly well that, you know, in terms of, networking and networking is extraordinarily powerful um but on the flip side uh what you also see is that introverts uh because they are spending less time socializing are generally much more inclined to become experts in their field they've got those hours to work on developing skills as opposed to developing relationships so if you're talking about a sales position hey uh yeah it's what you it's who you know not what you know is probably true However, in an area like uh, computer science or academic research, you know, it's probably better to be an expert in your field and being more of an introvert, focusing less on relationships would be would be a better path to success. Yeah. So in your book, what are some examples of things that we can do to bark up the right tree? <clears throat> well, you know, uh, for 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 each one of the chapters, it's a it's a different it's a different maxim. But, you know, by, by, for instance, one of the key things I talk about in the first chapter is playing by the rules. You know, for we, we, and what we see is that valedictorians actually usually don't go on to become billionaires because they're usually much more rule-focused and life is a lot more complicated than school. However, as a good, as a good principle in general, if we, if we basically start looking at what our signature strengths are, and that is where do you consistently produce results, what are the skills ben- really beneficial to you, and you align them with a context that, is really value- that really values those skills, that's kind of a general prescription for success in a number of arenas. I see. And now, what it, tell us a little bit more about your idea of the link between success and happiness. We're going to be speaking with our next guest in the program is going to be talking to us about happiness. And I'm curious to know what uh, what the link is between success and happiness. Uh, the link between success and happiness is, is largely reversed. And that is people who are happy are more inclined to be successful, more than successful leads to happy. We all know people who, who chase material success and end up burned out or disillusioned. However, people who start out uh, who start out focused on their own happiness often build better relationships. They're usually doing things and working in jobs that they're more interested in, and therefore more likely to be successful. So, actually, happiness leads to success more than success leads to happiness. Interesting. Yeah, that is so true. 
Um, based on some of the interviews and, and research that you've done, what are some of the things that we do that uh, that gets in the way of achieving success? <clears throat> there are a number of things, but uh, one of the one of the most common is in uh, the sixth chapter. I talk about the work life balance issue, and you know, right now this is a critical issue for so many people. And uh, what people generally do is, in terms of work life balance, you see people use. Well, we use what's called a, a, a collapsing uh, type scenario where they, they try and lump success into one metric, you know, like money. If I just make the number go up, I'm going to be happier. And, and obviously that doesn't work because then your health, your relationships, uh, your happiness can fail. Or people use a sequencing strategy whereby for this portion of my life, I'm going to focus on my career. Then this portion of my life, I'm going to focus on relationships. And then this portion, I'm going to focus on giving back. And, and you, can't, you can't break it out that much. Uh, that life doesn't play along with your little plan. So usually there needs to be a balance. Nash and Stevenson at Harvard showed that you need to have a balance between happiness, achievement, significance, and legacy, four separate metrics, to really get a balance across your life where you're feeling you're having a well-rounded existence. So what are some of those things that we can do to find that balance? Because you know, I think that is one thing that so many people struggle with. It's something that I struggle with at times. Yeah, those those four categories uh, that they came across, uh, happiness is as simple as are you enjoying what you're doing? Uh, achievement is are you moving forward in your career and your goals? Uh, third was significance, which is, is what you're doing benefiting those you love uh, around you? And fourth is legacy, is in any small way, is the work you're doing contributing to making the world a better place? And basically, the best way is to look at your calendar over the period of a week or a month and to look at your hours and kind of say, you know, is this one contributing to happiness? Is this contributing to significance? And as long as you find that you're roughly getting an even balance or you're at least depositing a little bit in each of those four categories, this is what was seen in many successful executives, people who found a balance between those four over the course of a week or a month on average. They had a much more balanced life because they weren't just thinking about career or just thinking about happiness and, and not their, their work. And by balancing those four, you see that people end up a lot more, a lot more well-rounded. Yeah, and I, I know that we're using the word balance here, but if you had to prioritize those and put them in order of importance, would you uh, put them in that same order that you just gave me, happiness, achievement, uh, significance, and legacy? <clears throat> That's It's an interesting question because uh, definitely happiness would become before achievement because Sonia Lubomirsky's research shows that, again, uh, happiness leads to success when success leads to happiness. But also beyond that, what's interesting is significance, the issue of benefiting those you love. Um, happiness and meaning in life are actually uh, slightly, slightly different. And meaning in life is more likely to lead to happiness than uh, immediate happiness is to lead to meaning in life. So I guess if I, had to, if I had to organize them, I would probably say significance, happiness, achievement, legacy. Interesting. Oh, wow. Yeah, it is so tough, you know, because 
We're told that we should, uh, you know, pay attention to our families and give them the time that they deserve, but it's difficult to give them the time they deserve unless we put in the hours that we need in order to take care of them financially. So, again, like I said, it's it's something that uh, a lot of people struggle with, but uh, it sounds like something that your book can help out with. Let's do this, uh, Eric. Let's take a break, and when we come back, I want to talk to you a little bit more about your blog and, and maybe some of the topics that you cover on that blog. And uh, we will do that. We'll take a break, and we'll continue the discussion here on The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We're speaking with Eric Barker, who is a uh, a blogger and also the author of the book Barking Up the Wrong Tree, The Surprising Science Behind Why Everything You Know About Success is Mostly Wrong. And Eric, welcome back to the show. It's great to be here. Yeah, and, and thanks again for being on the show. I, I, I was hoping we could talk a little bit more about your blog. Where First of all, where can we find it? Uh, uh, the, the URL is a little bit difficult to pronounce, so the best thing is to actually Google Barking Up the Wrong Tree or Google my name, Eric Barker. Okay. Now, tell us a little bit about how you got into writing this blog and what was kind of the impetus of, of this blog. Uh, basically, you know, I've, I've had a very unconventional career. I, my undergrad major was in philosophy, and then I was a screenwriter in Hollywood. And, uh, you know, I, I started wondering about a lot of these questions, the questions I cover in the book, but also larger questions about, about life, because I was having a, you know, again, a very unconventional, not the traditional path. Uh, and so there was a lot of things I was wondering about, and I figured the best place to go would be to start looking at research. And, uh, and it turns out that a lot of the questions that we have, you know, are, are already answered. Uh, it's just the information is not widely distributed. And, you know, in the past, it was difficult to get answers. Now it's too easy to get answers because not everything on the uh, the Internet is accurate. Right, yeah. And I, I'm looking here at the list of topics, Some of just some of the few topics on on your blog, and they sound really, really interesting. And I'm, I'm wondering if, if it's okay with you if we can just take a couple of these topics and you can just give us a short synopsis of, of uh, what you're talking about here, just to give us a little taste and so that we can uh, go check out the rest for ourselves on your blog. But uh, the one that, uh, that Terry, our producer, brought up that he's really curious about is the secret ingredient to grit that Navy SEALs and disaster survivors leverage to keep going. Terry's uh, it's becoming clear that he's a fan of your blog, and he's noticed that you've had several topics where you bring up the example of Navy SEALs. I'm just curious to know why Navy SEALs, and tell us a little bit more about that topic. Uh, simply because they, they go through such a such rigorous training, and the majority of of, of, uh, of 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 navy navy personnel who try to become a seal uh fail uh it is extremely rigorous it's very difficult um i believe by the end of the training they're up for about five days straight with you know very little food and you know swimming potentially drowning and just all all kinds of extreme uh behavior and getting through that is is extremely difficult so 
uh, like I said, on one hand, I love to look at the academic research and see what, what that shows, but I think there's also something valuable to be garnered from talking to individuals who are, are undeniably uh, experts in their field. I couldn't think of anybody uh, more gritty than yeah. <laughs> who would survive the gauntlet of, being, of becoming a Navy SEAL. Do you think that there are people out there that confuse grit with success? Yeah, and that's uh, one of the chapters in the book. I I, uh, I I talk about the issue of grit, and I think that you know it's become a very popular concept. Certainly, many people struggle with being uh, consistent uh, over the long haul in terms of of their goals. But one of the other things we have to keep in mind is that you know grit really can't exist without quit. Uh, you know, if we didn't quit things, you'd still be doing the same things you did when you were five years old. Uh, you know, so you have to sort of uh, give, up, give up some things. I mean, you've got the economic principle of opportunity cost. You only have 24 hours in a day. So by quitting some things, you allow more hours to, to display grit on the things that matter to you. So it's, it's always a trade-off. You know, we have to be able to let things go in order to focus on what's important. Yeah. Uh, here's another interesting one that really caught my eye. Uh, whether nice guys finish last, which you've already talked a little bit about, and why the best lessons about cooperation come from gang members, pirates, and serial killers. Now I have to go read that on your blog. <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about that. Um, it's really interesting when uh, basically any sort of criminal organization you know, has an inherent irony to it in the sense that these are people who are breaking rules, uh, who are breaking the law, uh, yet there's an organization. So they need to depend on one another to some degree. This is a group of untrustworthy people who need to trust each other uh, in order to form either a prison gang, a, a mafia, or something else. So I thought the best way to analyze the, the core elements uh, of trust was to look at the rules that even trust violators believe in uh, in order to realize, okay, this is what's absolutely critical. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. It, and it is so strange that you would think that there would be all this mistrust among these people that, uh, wow, oh, my goodness. I'm definitely going to go read that. Uh, another one here that I wanted to – I was hoping you could expand upon uh, because, you know, generally you would think that trying to increase your confidence would be a good thing. And yet you've got a topic here, why trying to increase confidence fails and how Buddhist philosophy holds a super, uh, I'm sorry, a superior solution. So tell us a little bit more about that one. Well, what we see is that, you know, most people have a baseline level of confidence, uh, you know, but confidence is usually the result, uh, not the cause. So if you are more successful, if you become better uh, at a skill or at your career, your confidence level will increase. But when the state of California launched a large initiative to try and raise the self-esteem of, of students, uh, it had almost no positive effects on grade point average, drug use, uh, or <clears throat> all the other metrics they were going by. And when you, when you set out merely to increase confidence, uh, usually what happens is you just increase narcissism. Uh, on the other hand, what's really interesting is that uh, <clears throat> you go back 2,000 years in the study of Buddhism, uh, you see the principle of self-compassion. Well, very recently, in the past 10 years, uh, Kristen Neff at University of Texas at Austin has done research on self-compassion, uh, again, outside of the, the, the Buddhism as a religion, but in look, looking at the practice, much like meditation in a secular sense. 
And it turns out that rather than trying to convince yourself uh, confidence-wise that you're better than you are, uh, the idea of self-compassion, that you merely focus on forgiving yourself when you're not as great as you'd like to be, actually offers all the benefits of self-confidence, but without the potential downsides. Interesting. So learning to forgive ourselves. Oh, wow. Um, I'm curious to know, what is what would you say is the best nugget of advice that you've been given in your life? Um, the best nugget of advice... Uh, I, 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 I talk about this in the first chapter of the book, where, where basically I think it's the combination of, of know thyself and picking the right pond, where if you know what, what your, what your skill set is, what you're good at, what you're interested in, and then you find yourself a context that values uh, those unique, unique preferences, unique abilities on your part, that's a pretty good prescription for success, according to the research, according to the experts, uh, and, and according to a, to a lot of folk wisdom. Uh, knowing thyself and, and then picking the right pond. So would you say that that's the main takeaway that you would want your readers uh, to take away from this book and to get on the right path toward change? Yeah, I think I think uh, in the one of the things I talk about is that I think it's really critical to think about the concept of alignment, where you know many people might work for a great company, but if that company doesn't value what you do, you're going to struggle to be successful. Might pe- many people might be really fantastic uh, at their role, but they might be at an organization that really doesn't value that role that much. So to really think about aligning your skill set and interests with the context you're in, that's how you're, you're, you're really going to set yourself up for long-term success. Yeah. So, Eric, uh, just in closing here, what's, what's next for you? What, uh, what topics are you looking forward to exploring a bit more? Oh, there's, there's probably too many. I, uh, I jump around <laughs> a little bit on the blog. I, I, I range, uh, I range all over the place, but I, uh, I really, en- I really enjoy looking at the research, and uh, and uh, I've been lucky enough to talk to some some really fascinating people. There's, uh, I've got a couple inter- I've got a couple posts on negotiation that were done with uh, the former lead international hostage negotiator for the FBI. Uh, there's a post I did recently on uh, keeping calm under pressure. Uh, that was an interview with a with a Navy bomb disposal expert. So, oh wow, <laughs> uh, I I have a lot. I get to have a lot of fun talking to some really interesting people. I'm, I consider myself very lucky. Well, Eric, thank you so much for your time here on the Matt Townsend Show. His name is Eric Barker, and he uh, runs the blog Barking Up the Wrong Tree. Just Google it. And then he's also the author of Barking Up the Wrong Tree, the surprising science behind why everything you know about success is mostly wrong. Make sure to check that out as well. We'll take a break. When we return, we'll continue the discussion and the fun here on The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Matt Townsend Show. We just finished speaking with Eric Barker, who is the... uh, author of the blog uh, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, as well as the book Barking Up the Wrong Tree. So go uh, check those out. I know Terry's a fan of his blog. Every Sunday. 
Uh, it rolls in, and there's all all kinds of. It's one of those things. It's like Wikipedia. There's all these links everywhere. Uh-huh. So he'll link you to other blog posts that he's done. Yeah. And so as you're going along, it just turns into this rabbit hole thing where you just keep clicking. Yeah. Oh, that one's interesting. <laughs> Let's look at that. And you, then all of a sudden, you kind of forgot where you started, so you have to just shut it down. And well, the titles of his of his blog posts are genius. Oh yeah, he's very They're, good. He's very good at hooking you in. Uh, like the one that uh, you can learn from serial killers yep. and pirates and gang members. You're like, what? I can't learn from them. And then you read, you're like, oh, yeah, good point. Yeah. On cooperation, I think is what it was. Yeah. Terry, anything else we uh, should be talking about? Our our society is slowly, not even slowly anymore. It's actually turning into a rather fast pace of getting to the point where we don't own things. Hmm. Right. I heard a discussion with some people about music. Mm-hmm. Right. If you have like an Apple product, you get possibly music from iTunes right? or you use an app like Spotify or Pandora. Yeah. Right. You don't actually have the music that you're listening to. iTunes, it'll just sort of download, but you don't end up with an MP3 file. Right. Right. I love to have the MP3 file so I can go in and edit it and play with it on some editing software that I have. But it just – with iTunes, it sort of downloads to your phone or maybe it's on your 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 your, your – if you download it to a, like a, a PC or a laptop or something, then I guess you can have a file there. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, a lot of this, you're just sort of renting the music. Interesting. Right? With Spotify, you don't physically have it. You don't – it just sort of downloads into the app. And it's because we don't want to have things. Sure. You know, you start – I mean, I, I saw some pictures of the old like CD – uh, organizing binders that you used to have where uh, you have like 500 CDs and that oh, was yeah. like a sign of... Still have those. You know, you start bragging, like, look at all my CDs and they're just, <laughs> it's just massive things sitting on the shelf taking up space for really what reason? Yeah. And I started reading this article. It's out of a website called thenextweb.com and it says, studies have shown that the average American household has 3,000 items and only 80% of it is used less than once a month. Really? We just have stuff in our house. Wow. Like, do, you have, do you have a shelf of books? Uh, yes. How yes, often I do. have you looked at those books? I don't think I've looked at it since we moved in six months ago. Do you dust the books? No. Somebody? Anybody? No. See, I, in my house, I'll go through and dust every once in a while. I, have to put I, that don't, in. I do not dust the books. I, but the books, they just sit there and literally collect dust because mm-hmm. you don't open them, you don't look at them, right? I have an entire collection of this series of books that I just love, right? I've read them once. They're still sitting on the shelf. But I you read want, them you when want I was people, 15. You want people to know that you read them. It's a, Not really. It's not in a, <laughs> a, a, like a place where people come down. I just – I like – I enjoy having those books. Yeah. For, I look over and I have that memory of, oh, I read that book. That That's was a, a cool point. story. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I could have it in a digital source and be able to just have it there and then I don't have it on the shelf. And True. I could have you know, different – that's like in, in my bedroom there are bookshelves on the wall. And that's a design feature that the previous owner made, but we take advantage of it because all our books are in there. Mm-hmm. So when if we ever go to like remodel, we have all these books. What are we going to do with the books? We'll have to figure out a bookshelf somewhere else in the house. Or do we get rid of them and you just have it on like a, an iPad or something, on a digital source? And then are you the type of person that would like to have the physical book in your hand or could you deal with having to read it I, digitally? I've tried reading digitally. It just doesn't work for me. Not the same. I enjoy flipping the page and kind of knowing Getting kind of where you cut. are. Well, not really the paper <laughs> cut, but knowing where you are in the book. Sure, yeah. You can look at like a bookmark and see, okay, I, I, I'm about halfway through. On a digital side, like sometimes I, uh, some of the books I've read don't even have page numbers. 
Right. So you're yeah. just looking at this endless stream of words and you're just kind of you don't get no you don't quite get a source of where you are in the story. Yeah. So it's kind of just a but there is that that people like that feel of paper. Mm-hmm. So there's that but there's other people that just love and they've made a lot of the uh ebook readers actually look like paper. So when you right. when you flip you a page, flip page it looks like it's a page yeah. it maybe even makes that sound. Yeah. When you have a page flipping, they try to give you that experience on a digital side. Still not so, quite the same though. No. Yeah. Uh, so you got DVDs. Do you have VHS, H, VHS tapes? Uh, I think I have one or two. And we have a couple, I believe. I think we got. But I don't have a. I don't have a VCR. We have. We used to have one. I have to look and see if it's still there. But you know, people want to you know, streaming now. You know, or you you buy it digitally and store it on your phone instead of having a physical copy. I'm trying you know? to do that more now. More of that. So yeah. I just we we live in this economy. Even even to the point of like, do you want to own a car? You know, people want to mm. use an Uber or a Lyft service instead of physically owning a car because maybe they don't need a car for every single place they go. Right. But they do need it on occasion. So maybe having a car, maybe having to – in some cities you're paying for parking. Mm-hmm. That becomes really expensive. And if you, you cut that out of your life, there's a lot of money you could save there. Hmm. So we're, we're getting to this point where we're not really owning things as much. We're just sort of – they exist, but it's not like physically we can reach out and grab them. They're more of a, a digital imprint that's there. I am frequently telling my wife, you know, we need to get rid of like 50% of our kids' toys yeah. that they never play with and that are just these little tiny tchotchkes that get lost and stuck in places and they forget about them. Now, talking about cars real quick here with Uber and all yeah. those driver services that are out there, Cadillac recently launched a car subscription service that at $1,500 a month, it's not necessarily cheap, but $1,500 right. a month, for those who can afford it can pretend they're like, uh, you know, like they say Jay Leno because he has a huge car collection, the comedian. Yeah. Uh, but you can switch out your car up to 18 times a year. Really? If you you just don't get you don't oh, let's try another car and you go to you get a different car. See now I would consider that maybe for a couple of months or at least one month, right? Just to see which car I like the best and then purchase that car, right? But it's pe- a great idea. But people, if you're constantly wanting to change, maybe that's a, a service for you. But again, you're not owning something; you're just sort of paying a service and rotating a vehicle in and out. Matt needs to know about this because yeah. he's always complaining about the car that he drives. Or the car that he just barely purchased and then came mm-hmm. in the first day and he goes, ah, I don't know if I like this car. <laughs> like, why did you buy the car? He would love this program. But yeah, so there's just we're just embracing all these different technologies and essentially what it's getting to is that we don't own things anymore. Right? Yeah. You know, how often do you write things down? Ooh, if I write them down, I never look at them again. Yeah, it's like you write a note and where did that go? Right. And and most people are recording things on their phone or a device of that that kind to be able to keep track of that. So yeah, it's where we're headed. Oh goodness, we need to we need to declutter, get rid of things, and uh, wow, kind of it's interesting with that car renting program. I'm sure Matt's going to want to hear about that when he gets back. We'll take a break. When we return, we'll continue the fun here on the Matt Townsend Show. The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1 855 Chat BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. 
Good Thursday morning. Welcome back to the final hour of the Matt Townsend Show. It's May 11th, and today we're celebrating Eat What You Want Day, but we're doing it without any food in the studio. Violin, playing tiny violin, because Palakiko neglected to go to the store and get us those new fireworks Oreos that we've been hearing so much about. And we don't, we don't have the fireworks Oreos. We don't have the waffle and syrup Oreos here in the studio. I'm hoping that we have more Oreo news today. No. Oh, darn it. They've, it's all of a sudden slowed down for the week. They've done two, two new flavors. They're not going to overwhelm you with the third. They're waiting for Palakiko to submit his idea for the new Oreo flavor. Um, and nobody has taken uh, nobody has taken my idea yet, which is chicken and waffle mm. Oreos. I think they're trying to steer clear from meat products <laughs> in cookies. But. I'm not saying there has to be meat in it, but maybe like a meat flavor. If if Jelly Bellies that doesn't can make, make it sound any better. If Jelly makes them sound like chicken McNuggets, yeah, meat flavoring. <laughs> yeah. But if Jelly Bellies can make like a grass and a popcorn and a booger flavor, they should be able to do yeah. mm. a chicken and waffle Oreo. Yeah, come on. I think there's just areas of science that we shouldn't wade into. <sighs> We're messing as, with, as Jeff Goldblum would say in Jurassic Park. <laughs> Anyway, so uh, we'll continue to celebrate Eat What You Want Day without the food, of course. Uh, We will also, in a bit here, be talking to our guest, uh, Jeanette Bennett, who's going to be talking to us about what happy people talk about. Yeah, what do they talk about? (laughs) Are you you saying that you are not one of those happy people? Um, I wouldn't say I'm happy. I wouldn't say I'm sad. I'm saying I'm kind of in the middle. Are you content? Sure. Okay. I don't have a lot of complaints. I have some. I have a few. <laughs> Nobody cares, so I tend but, to keep them to myself. But, but those complaints have to do with other people, though, and not complaints of your own life. Oh, no. Well, I mean, there's stuff in my life. That, yeah, sure. If it could be fixed. Yeah. Take my children, please. You know, that happens every couple hours. I mean, no big deal. I know what you mean. It's like when we're eating McDonald's French fries and we get to the bottom of the carton. Yeah. How come I can't have more fries? Well, you could. You have to buy them, though. <laughs> Go to uh, Red Robin. And there's fries. always a catch. There's always a catch. I tried to sell you on the Red Robin fries the other day, and you weren't having it. Well, I learned. I remembered. Okay. Good. That sounds really good right now, by the way. Uh, Terry, anything else going on around the rest of the country? There is this pre- Is America ready for President The Rock? Hmm. A fairly, it says here, a fairly delightful profile of Dwayne Johnson in GQ magazine. The wrestler turned movie star talks about his possible future in politics. It started with an opinion piece in the Washington Post last year that stated that Johnson could be an actual presidential candidate. At the time, Johnson called the idea fun to read, but now he says he's been giving it some serious thought. I think that it's a real possibility, he says. Word has it that The Rock leans Republican. Stranger things have happened. And by the way, it's not the first time, if he does run, it's not the first time that a wrestler, a professional wrestler, has run for president. Or public office. Right. Yeah. And in fact, the current president is in the WWE Hall of Fame, so we're all on top of things here. (laughs) The next time you go under the knife for retinal surgery, you know, the next time. Yeah. uh, It may not be a human hand holding the blade. See, now that scares me already. That's because a revolutionary surgical system developed by the university in Oxford in the UK just passed its first set of clinical trials and able to perform these intricate operations better than any any of the most steadiest of surgeons. 
because you got to have a steady hand to operate on the eye. The problem lies in the pulse. Retinal surger, surger, or surgeries rely on creating minuscule holes in the eye to gain access to the retina itself. A 10 micron thick flap of membrane that, co- that converts light into electrical signals uh, that the brain can interpret. The, in the case of uh, an issue like, uh, and they talk about this membrane, essentially it's a scar on the retina caused by anything from an injury to disease to just growing old. Even uh, the flow of blood through a surgeon's hand is enough to throw off their accuracy, raising the odds that they'll cut too deeply and make matters worse. So as they're sitting there, ready to cut on your eye, the pulse in their in their hand from the the blood supply to their hand could cause them to be uh, inaccurate with their yeah. you know their incisions. So I have been to a dentist where as they're operating on you their their hands are shaking a little bit and I'm thinking you probably need to retire. Yeah. So they came up with something called the robotic retinal dissection device. Uh-oh. Called for short R2D2. Uh. <laughs> Cuz robotic retinal and dissection device R2D2. Yes. That's really why this story, you know, kicked me into let's let's yeah. share this. So it, there's no pulse problems. Therefore it's precise enough to make this precision cut and it's able to do it uh, what does it say here? Tenfold it's a tenfold increase in precision over human surgeons. See, I don't know. So this the robot is me. ten times more accurate than a human. Because the conspiracy theorist in me, which is not a very big part of me, wants to say that you know what happens when the machines take over or become right. angry with well, us. To, 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 <laughs> to alleviate your concern, there, there is a surgeon in control. He's got a okay. joy. He's got a joystick, and he's controlling this thing. But it, it has such precision that's able to do this. Ten times better than a surgeon. So he's basically playing a video game. So he's on kind you. of playing a video game, but it's still kind of a robot. See, I think we're we do terrible things to technology. You know, we'll you know shake a, a TV set when it's not working properly, or we'll knock on things when they're not working properly, and maybe the the machines are going to get their revenge. Right. Right. I don't know. I, I think I think we're, we're on to a good place here where we can improve okay. the situation, but not just totally give it over to the robot. All right. So kind of like the self-driving car. Right. In another story, a Connecticut woman got an unexpected and terrifying knock on her door last week when she was making brownies as a bear came by to see what she was doing. My neighbor across the street just came over in a panic. One of the resident neighbors said to a 911 dispatcher, she's a little old lady screaming that a bear got in her back porch and is slamming on her glass door. A slim pane of glass was all that came between the woman and her uh, in her home and her hungry bear drawn to the house by the delicious smell of fresh baked brownies. Mm. The bear apparently moved the slider screen with one, one of his paws and the neighbor uh, was reported. A second neighbor called 911 to show how desperate the bear was for the taste of those brownies. We have a bear attempting to get into a house, and he's not afraid of noise, screaming, or yelling, or pounding, the neighbor said. The two-and-a-half-year-old bear would not budge from the home, no matter how much noise the owner made. Eventually, it decided to leave on its own. Hey, but, uh, boo-boo. It was drawn by the brownies. <laughs> She's got the bear-proof glass, but she might need the Jeff-proof glass. I saw him just salivate over there when the brownies were mentioned. Oh, well, I mean, anything that your grandma makes is so good. Always. Oh. Now, I will say homemade brownies are much more difficult to pull off than the ones that you can make from the box. I believe you. It's uh, It's science. I don't know if that's true, but it kind of sounds like it was Yogi Bear. But again, yeah, if it was like grandma's chicken soup or pumpkin pie, poppy seed cake, I would probably be tempted to do that too. 
can't fault the bear too much. She was okay. Did the bear get any brownies? She should have just thrown some out. I, I don't know if the bear actually got in the home. Okay. But it was enough that – I mean there's a picture of the bear looking at this sort of sliding glass sort of patio door just sort of pounding on the door and everyone's scared because, you know, you don't want to share brownies with a bear. Right. So she must know how good they are because she didn't share. Right. Absolutely. Wow. Oh, my goodness. So we Cole and I were just saying box – Brownies versus homemade brownies. Either or. Really? Yeah. You're not picky? No. My wife gets this uh, – I forget what the brand is, but I know when she changes brands. I'm like, that wasn't as, as good a brownie. She goes, yes, I know. I'm sorry. She always apologizes <laughs> when it's the other brand. Do better next time, honey. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're good with the chocolate chips in them, but I usually have to take it with uh, – with, you know, I have to eat my brownies a la mode. Mm. Maybe with some chocolate syrup. Chopped up peanuts on it. Wow. Mm. But I can eat that today. You can just eat the brownie? No. Okay. No. I can eat that today because it's eat what you want day. You're like high maintenance, are you? Um, No, I'm not. Eh. I'm really not. Sounds like it. Well, ask me another food question and we'll we'll see if I'm high maintenance. We've talked about salsa and Mm -hmm. chips and Mm -hmm. you you, you have specific tastes for that. You just can't take some chips and eat some salsa. It has to be this. And if it's too oily, oh, you got to change the salsa. You no, can't do I, this. And, 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 and now you try to defend yourself. <laughs> but in just doing that, you're being high maintenance. No, I have an opinion for sure. Mm-hmm. But uh, when it comes to food, I'll just eat it. Really? doesn't really matter. Okay. I could complain about these cold French fries that have been sitting out. I'll still eat them. Mm. But, you know, who wouldn't want them? Warm and salty. Mm. Right. See, then you do this and you talk yourself into a hunger pain. Can we – I mean we do have we do have a guest coming up, right? Yes, okay. yes, yes. So we can't just take we, off right No, now. we just can't go and Darn buy it. food. Um, there's some more uh, food sort of. I mean it is soda. I don't know if that qualifies as food anymore because it is kind of a – I mean you can take – Oil off cement with most of these cola products, but you know, what are you going to do? Um, so Pepsi um, has a new flavor, apparently. Crystal clear? Please tell me it's making a comeback. No, it's called Fire. Hmm. Pepsi Fire. The soda company testing out new products in select 7-Eleven stores, um, but it's only in a flavor of a Slurpee. Really? Yeah. So it's not in can form. Okay, so where does the fire come from? It's Cinnamon. Cinnamon flavored cola, you know, Pepsi. And then they have it, of course, in a Slurpee, which is just more sugar. So, how, what, what, and they like a cinnamon fireball jawbreaker type candy, I, get, I imagine. I don't want to drink that. Yeah. I don't know. It didn't sound really appetizing to me. No. I was so excited the day that 7 Eleven came out with the Cherry Coke Slurpee. Oh, right. There was a. But I think it was diet cherry Coke. So then I was able to drink as much as I wanted because, you know, there were no calories. Now, one Instagram account posted a picture what appears to be a prototype and hinted that the cans for Pepsi Fire could come out later this year. Why? Because we need cinnamon-flavored cola. Who is asking for this? I don't know if it's an ask. It's more of a what do you think? Did somebody take a swig of a Pepsi and chow down some hot tamales at the same time and think, Maybe. this is a match made in heaven? Wow. I don't know if that's really a winner, but maybe we'll, we'll give that a shot. Cole, do you remember Crystal Clear Pepsi? Yeah. I mean, I know I know that it existed. 
Not a big fan. Not, no. <laughs> Did you try it? Yeah. Oh, of okay. course. See, I, I, I enjoyed it just for the novelty. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're like, wow, it looks like water, but it doesn't taste like water. <gasps> so does that mean you also enjoyed like the purple and green ketchup? Uh, that was, eh, no, that was a little beyond me. Yeah, it's I a little too much. I kind of saw those like, okay, those are for kids. Okay, we're fine. You know. I think those lasted longer around the Pittsburgh area because it was a Heinz product than they did everywhere else because we still had them. I. I remember so recently ago, and everyone else that I talked to was like, yeah, that, that mid-90s little thing that happened. I, had, I remember going to buy it when I was in high school. Yeah. It is definitely one of those things, though, where it's like, uh, I guess I'll eat this, but it's tough to choke down just because it doesn't look right. Uh, anyway, Crystal Clear Pepsi, Cinnamon Pepsi. If you don't try, you'll never find that next great Pepsi, though. You just got to throw a lot of things at the wall. See <laughs> we what were talking sticks. about. That. We mm-hmm. just said that the other day. You've just got to get all Oreo's the ideas out there. It. Yeah, Lay's has been trying it. Something's going to work. Trying it. Yeah. How would we know that the double decker taco was good unless somebody was brave enough to suggest it? And the KFC double down, where it was now that I have chicken not tried with cheese and bacon and cheese in the middle, and then chicken again. <laughs> no bun needed. That that was quite possibly the yeah. greatest achievement in human culinary advancement, but it was for a limited time only. Wait, I so I it. can't get the double down? I, I've been to KFC and tried, and they don't have it anymore. Not here. You know what you need to do? Just say, can you just make me a double down? I'll pay whatever you want. Just make me the double down. So I don't frequent Taco Bell, but if I go there, I'm getting the double decker. But if, like you said... W- we just need to throw out all these ideas. Something will stick. We need brave people to just suggest these things so that we can uh, benefit. And eat them because you can eat whatever you want today. That's, that's right. Wow. All what comes a, full circle. What a great way to end this segment. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we are going to be talking to our guest, Jeanette Bennett who's going to be talking about what happy people talk about. And we've learned here on the Matt Townsend Show that happy people talk about food, apparently, on Eat What You Want Day. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Have you ever seen someone and you can just tell that they're happy just by looking at them? What is it that makes those happy people so happy? Well, here to talk with us about what happy people talk about is Jeanette Bennett, who uh, I I understand that you recently did a TED Talks at UVU. Is that correct? I did. I was part of their TEDx UVU event. It's actually one of the scariest things I've done. Really? (laughs) Oh, and I should clarify, UVU is University of of Utah Valley University. Right. Yep, in Orem, Utah. I can never remember because, you know, when I was going to school here at BYU, it was uh, UVSC. Right. It's changed its name several times through the years. 
Yeah. Yeah, But it's full-blown university now, and they held this TEDx uh, event, which was awesome. It was a day-long event. All these great speakers came into town. We all stood on that red dot and watched the countdown go on, the bright lights. It it was a lot of fun. It really was. Yeah. And I'm a fan of of TED. Of TED Talks. And yeah. So it's fun to be part of that. So uh, is there anywhere that we can find that if we care to look it up later? It's on YouTube. If okay. You, if you Googled TEDxUVU or, or my name, TEDx Jeanette Bennett, you'd find it on there. Okay. So what was, what was the subject of your TED Talk there at UVU? I chose to talk about what happy people talk about. And the reason for that is I'm a journalist. I've been interviewing people for 25 years. And I've just noticed happiness patterns among people, all types of ages, all types of experience, people who've had a lot of hardships, uh, people who've had a lot of successes, and still they reveal their happiness in their conversation patterns. And so I chose to share some of the commonalities I've noticed among people who have chosen to be happy and seen the good in yeah. their life's experience. You know, it's interesting because as you were saying that, I was just thinking of the example of – I was picturing you know, a grandfather or a grandmother that has a guest over in their home and they're talking to their guests about their grandchildren and pulling out pictures. You know, right. To me, that seems like – that's that says that they're happy. So give us some examples of, of what happy people are talking about. Okay. Well, at the very core, happy people talk. Connection is really what brings us happiness. And I've learned that from some of the older people that I've interviewed. Toward the end of their lives, they are talking only really about relationships and people, family, friends. It's not about bank accounts or even accomplishments. It's about people. And so part of being happy is just being willing to connect and just being willing to talk. And that doesn't mean extrovert versus introvert. Introverts and extroverts, all of us can connect just by being willing to open up, share some of our life stories. So that's just the, the first First tip right there is that happy people are willing to talk and connect. Yeah, that's interesting because our last guest uh, was talking about success. Mm-hmm. And we talked a little bit about the the link between happiness and success. And I'm glad that you mentioned that about introverts and extroverts because that was going to be my next question of whether or not uh, introverts can be happy, especially when they're not having that much right. of a connection as compared to an extrovert. Right. And I actually consider myself an introvert. I like listening more than talking, mm-hmm. I would say. And, and so my profession fits my personality. But still, an introvert does not mean that they lack confidence or that they lack happiness. It, it might just mean that they are good at listening and that they enjoy listening and they don't have to talk in order to feel satisfied. But uh, all of us need to be able to open up and share our story. And, and when we connect, when, when there's that hug at, an, at the end of a conversation of, wow, we really just connected. We're bonded now. That's because the two people opened up and they talked. They shared something together. Yeah. And I guess, you know, not that we need to have a whole discussion on introverts uh, versus extroverts, but it seems like an introverted person might even be more capable of having really strong relationships because maybe they're more selective about the people that they engage with. True. And also, may, they might even edit themselves a little bit more. So in a 10-minute conversation, they might notice that they've been talking for six or seven minutes and that it's not balanced, whereas an extrovert might just enjoy that someone is listening and they might take up more of the time. But anyway, just that that basic idea of being willing to open up. And and secondly, uh, being willing to talk about things you've learned. 
Not necessarily in a complaining way. Okay, yes, you've been in three car accidents this year, and maybe you've had a, a bout with cancer, or, or maybe there's a family concern that you have. You don't have to shy away from those, but you can talk about them in a way that's not complaining, it's not blaming, it's not I'm a victim. It's here's what I've learned, or here's some of the questions that I have. Those are those are things that help us connect, and and the the other person can see you not as someone who needs uh, to be reassured, but just wants to connect and and wants to feel that human. Feeling that human bond that we learn from some of those complicated things. Yeah, what would you suggest to somebody that、uh, maybe isn't as aware that they're not such a great listener and that they're only they're the ones that are doing all the talking? Okay, so I would say they need to learn to ask questions. That's a really big key in in conversation patterns is being willing to ask questions. So, for example,、uh, a simple question would be, "Well, tell me more about that." You know, you say, "Well, how was your day?" or "What's happened so far today?" and they say something. Well, tell me more about that.、Or、how did that make you feel? Has that ever happened before? Just asking a follow-up question keeps you in check, keeps you sending the conversation back to the other side of the of the table, and、uh, that can deepen things. And people do like to talk about their feelings. Sometimes they haven't even thought about it. Sometimes they haven't even thought, "Well, what did I learn from that?" But being asked that helps you dig a little deeper, and you feel that connection, and you feel that happiness between the two of you. Yeah, and you know we we talked briefly about the the link between happiness and success.、Um, there are people out there that confuse the two, right? Right. Now, what advice would you have for somebody that maybe thinks that they're happy, but after talking to them a little bit, you realize、mm, they're probably not happy? Well, and how do you how do you get them to see that? I think you can point out some of the good things. One of the other things I've noticed about happy people is they talk about things they're thankful for, people they're thankful for, experiences they're thankful for.、Uh, for example, Tyler Glenn, the frontman of Neon Trees,、uh, he's actually an introvert. You might not think that when he's on stage,、huh. he's he's an extrovert. But in the interview, it was obvious, and he talked about how he's an introvert. But one of the things that came up again and again was his gratitude. Specifically for his mom, he says whenever anything cool happens in the band, that everyone in the band wants to call his mom because she makes it sound like the coolest thing that's ever happened. <laughs> and so, just expressing that gratitude. And so, if you're talking to someone who is a little bit complaining or something, maybe you could point out, "Wow, well, that's that's awesome. You were able to pull through that, or what strength you have for being able to to get through." I'm impressed. Well, you're going to be stronger the next time something happens to you like that. Yeah.、So、just pointing that out, helping them see that there's a, there's actually a silver lining here. So helping other people see that and then recognizing it ourselves, I think, is is a huge part of being happy in our short term and long term. Yeah.、Lives. So happy people are talking about family members. They're talking about.、Um, Just things that are going on in their lives that they're grateful for. What else are happy people talking about? Okay, one thing they're not doing is telling you how busy they are and how stressed they are. So the opposite of that is I I've noticed that happy people are willing to talk about things they do to either recharge themselves or challenge themselves.、Uh, so instead of saying、oh, I have so much to do today, I've been up since four o'clock, and I you know people have been taking all my time, and I still have I'll be up till midnight. Now that's not necessarily a sign of a happy person, but someone who said Hey, I broke away for fifteen minutes this morning for a walk. It really recharged me. Or I'm looking forward to this half marathon I'm going to do this summer. I I feel like I really need that. My Mind and body really need that. I'm I'm excited to take that time for that, and and so it's it's recognizing that cramming your schedule so full that you are unhappy, and then making sure everybody knows about it. That's not 
that's not necessarily the sign of a happy person or someone you want to talk to that much because you feel stressed out right? by the time you're done talking to them. And so weaving into our conversation ways that we're recharging or taking time for ourselves, that's not a selfish thing. That's actually a, a good thing and a healthy thing for us to recognize we need it and then to be willing to, to share that with other people. Yeah. Here's what I'm doing for myself. Yeah. That's not selfish. That's, that's actually a sign of a good, balanced, happy yeah. person. Jeanette... Uh, you, you bring up a good point. You know, people that are happy tend to be the type of people that you want to be around. Right. You know, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I consider myself a happy person, but I don't necessarily consider myself one of those people that, you know, is always just uplifting other people and like that's the guy I want to be just like, and I want to be around him all the time. Is it possible for anybody to become that person, or is it really necessary that we all try to be those types of people? I would hope all of us have the goal to be happy, to leave other people better than we found them. One simple, simple way is just to try to smile more. That's really simple. But one of the studies that, that we just actually wrote about was that children smile 200 times a day. They're happy. Really? They're, people are naturally happy. Children are naturally happy. Adult women smile 63 times a day. Still pretty good, but it's a third of what the children are doing. And this particular study said adult men only smile eight times a day. No. Now, I hope that's not true, but I think it probably in general is true that children – smile and laugh more easily. And as adults, we we get weighed down. We choose to see the stress. And I think if we just tell ourselves, I want to smile more today. I'm going to smile 10 more times than I did yesterday. Even if it's sort of forced at first, Mm -hmm. it will feel more natural over time to turn those corners up of your mouth and and especially when you meet someone new for the first time, to, to give them this vibe of, you know, I'm I'm actually a happy person and I'm happy to meet you. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. I, I remember when I was going to uh, – I attended Brigham Young University in Idaho uh, and I just tried a little experiment. I On my way to school, I said, I'm just going to say hi to 100 people, just random it. people that I pass. And I was amazed at how quickly that – time went by. I was able to get those hundred people in like that. Right. And I think it surprised a lot of people that I said hi to that, oh, uh, yeah, hi, I could say hi back to you, you know, and it's not this big deal. So that would be an interesting uh, study to do with smiles, like just let's, I'm going to smile this number of times a day. I think it's contagious. Yeah, Just from your experiment, it sounds like the people on the sidewalk, they caught your smile. Some of them might have caught them off guard, but then they were probably more likely to smile at the next person they saw. Right. So you, it's so it's so strange these little games that we play with each other, whether you know it's conscious or, or you know unconscious, where you know we pass somebody and if we don't really know them, you know we'll pretend like we need to look down at our phone or we look down at the ground or look at something else so that we don't have to make that eye contact with somebody. Right, it's silly. Yeah, it really is doesn't silly. make any sense. So, do you think it's true? Is it true that we're it's taking more muscles to frown than it does to smile? Have you heard that? I've definitely heard that. Yeah, I've definitely heard that. And it does feel like it, it physically weighs you down to frown. But when you smile, it lifts the corner of your mouth, and I think it lifts your soul in a way, and and can make your day go better. Yeah, it seems. Yeah, it seems like our natural reaction to certain things, more of those would lead us to smile than to frown. Right. So I can't really think of an example of, you know, our our instinct is to, you know, curve our mouth downward. I don't 
I don't can't think of any example. Why are we doing that? I don't yeah, <laughs> got to learn from the kids. Another suggestion I would give is to be a journal writer, whether that's an Instagram poster, a, a gratitude journal, quick one sentence a day, because what that does is it helps you see the stories of your day in a positive light. Because sometimes people will say, oh, I don't have anything to say. Or I don't have any stories to tell. But if you get used to seeing stories in your day-to-day life, short stories, long stories, the lesson in it, the humor in it, then when you're having a conversation, those things will naturally come to mind because you will you will see your life as a series of shareable stories, shareable humorous tidbits. Uh, but sometimes we're not in the habit of seeing our lives in, in story form. Yeah. But really it's the stories that connect us to each other and that we remember about each other. And I love that. It's a good reminder to me, too. I've lately, I haven't been fully committed on writing a journal, but I'll have, you know, just a a fun experience with my daughters and I'll jot it down on my phone. Perfect. You know, my daughter said this, or we, you know, they were, they played on their kazoos along to such and such a song (laughs) that we're listening to in the car. You know, just little things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Even taking pictures. Yeah. Now, sometimes I don't have time to write something down, but if I take a picture of something, it reminds me, and I'll scroll through my photo roll, and it reminds me of just the little stories of my day, of something I saw, something that made me smile, something that was beautiful, and it helps train our minds to see those positive things and funny things and so that we can use them to connect. See, my problem with that is uh, you have to have space on your phone to do that, which I never <laughs> seem to have I any know. space. I know. I'm always yeah. deleting an app. Oh, I need yeah. a space. i got to take a video right now. <laughs> delete, delete. Oh, goodness. Well, Jeanette, let's do this. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to ask you a little bit more about maybe some of the numbers be- behind uh, how many people are happy and which maybe countries are more happy than the others. We'll do that. We'll take a break and we'll continue the discussion here on The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who's still away, but uh, he shall return tomorrow, so don't worry. Be happy. And speaking of happy, we're speaking with Jeanette Bennett, who is shedding some more light on uh, what it takes to be happy and what really happy people talk about. And uh, before we we took a break, we teased that... uh, we would get into some of the numbers behind who's happy and who's not. I'm curious to know how happy are Americans compared to people in other countries? Well, studies show lots of different things, right? But one study that I've included in some of my research is that the United States is 23rd in the world in happiness. Yikes. That makes no sense. We have everything we need. Yeah, you know, it seems like we should water. be. Yeah, <laughs> things that should should bring us happiness, but other things we choose to let bring us down. You know, and a lot of us who have traveled to third world countries, one of the things we always notice is these people are actually pretty happy in their little shacks and in their one piece of clothing that they yeah. own. We have a lot we can learn from other countries because twenty third in the whole world that's yeah. that's not okay. Yeah, so I'm guessing. I'm guessing that priorities play a part in this and that a lack of uh, holidays is going to play a part in this. Well, there you go. And I think just perspective. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Perspective, what, what we think equates happiness. We're a little yeah. messed up with that. So in your opinion, what do Americans typ- typically equate with happiness? Money. Money. Uh, beauty. Thinness. 
We women are, are bad at that. We're always starting a diet, and, and I'm guilty too. But we always think that we'll be happy when there's 10 pounds gone. Yeah. You're not alone. You know, men do that too. In fact, Matt Townsend is always trying some new diet and but uh, there's certain foods that he can just never cut out. Right. But is he happy when he's on a diet? See, that's the thing. He's always happy, but uh, yeah, never right. happy with the diet. Yes. It's hard. It's hard. So I think just, just knowing where happiness comes from, and it comes from within. I think we're not judgmental of other people's extra 10 pounds, but we're hard on ourselves, and we think that that's the only way we're we're going to be happy at times or what car we drive or uh, yeah. whether, you know, when all the kids are in school, then I can adjust my happiness. Or, you know, if you struggle to start a family, I'll be happy when, when I'm able to start a family. So we, we're guilty sometimes of waiting and putting off our happiness. That's, that's not what we need to do. And I think we can learn from other countries that we can be happy now. We yeah. can be happy that the sun came up and yeah. that we're breathing and that we have a friend next to us that made us laugh. That's pretty cool. And it seems like we wouldn't need to be so worried about being patient if we could just take care of the, the bigger problem that we really should not compare our lives to other people's lives because that's not a good gauge for success or even happiness, no, right? No, it really isn't. And social media, I love it. Mm. It's so fun. But it does add to that comparison game. And it also adds to our impatience. We post a photo and we're looking immediately for likes and validation. Yep. Did people like that? Did people find it funny You and just charming? described me right there. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So we've, we've become trained that happiness and validation comes immediately. Yeah. And that's not always the natural flow of life in our 80, 90, 100 years on this planet. We have to be a little patient for some of these things to play out. Yeah. It is tough because, you know, especially when you talk about success, you you wish that you knew how to gauge that. And it seems like our only way to gauge it is, well, how much do the so-and-sos make that live next door? You know, and it's just – it's really unfortunate. Right. Right. I think when our basic economic needs are met, uh, we should really stop worrying about all that stuff. And it's easier said than done, of course. But we need to find our happiness and our peace from other ways. Yeah. So uh, how do we tell if someone else is happy? And I know we talked a little bit about this earlier as far as listening goes. But there are some people out there that are just really good at putting on a, a happy face even when – there's obviously something wrong. Right, because sometimes physical signs give it away, the way their shoulders are slouched or mm -hmm. if they're smiling or not. You can see it in people's eyes. Uh, so you, you often can tell if your kids, for example, are carrying a weight or if your spouse or a coworker. Uh, but sometimes you can't. Sometimes people are really good at everything's fine, everything's fine, and then behind closed doors they're – they're sad and they're Googling depression. You know, yeah. They're trying to figure it out on their own. So how can we figure that out? Well, I think by asking good questions, by listening, lo looking for cues, clues in what they say. If, if they're pointing out the negative in their day, every day, or if they're pointing out flaws in other people or themselves – throughout the conversation, if that gets speckled throughout, that's a clue that they're not at peace inside and there's, and there's some progress they could make and we could help them make by pointing out the good things, pointing out the good things in themselves and in others and helping train them to see the good. Yeah. Jeanette, in, in the small amount of time that we have left here, um, talk to us a little bit about 
How service can play a part in happiness. Okay. Well, I think one thing that leads to unhappiness is when we do focus too much on ourselves, what we don't have, what we don't look like, what we haven't accomplished yet. But when we turn our eyes outward, when we're looking at other people and what do they need, how could I help them? The focus is off of ourselves. We're not looking in a mirror. We're looking out a window at、uh, possibilities, and and so that's the first thing is that it takes the focus off ourselves. The second thing is you get a natural high when you help someone else. When you put a smile on someone else's face, it's just this natural reaction that it comes right back to you. That,、yeah. that karma is true principle comes right back, and you end up smiling yourself. It feels so good to help other people. Talk about perspective too, as you mentioned earlier. That'll give you perspective better than most things will. It really will. It shows you what's important, and it's、yeah. people, it's relationships. Well, Jeanette Bennett, we really appreciate you coming in this morning to be on the Matt Townsend show, and、uh, we'll have you back because、Perfect. I know Matt、uh, wants to have you on the show and, and interview you himself. Let's do it. Her name is Jeanette Bennett, and、uh, she just recently gave a, a TED topic or TED talk on what happy people talk about. So go and look that up online. She's also the founder and editor in chief at Bennett Communications, where she primarily focuses on Utah Valley Magazine, Business Q Magazine, and Prosper Magazine. And、uh, Jeanette earned her bachelor's and master's degree in journalism from BYU, and has been a regular guest on HuffPost Live. And、uh, thanks again for being on the show. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be speaking with our good friends at BYU Sports Nation. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We are heading over to Spencer and Jerem to take part in my favorite part of the show, and they always question me on whether it is my favorite part of the show. But、uh, I can say it certainly is. Spencer and Jerem, how are you guys doing? We're good. Okay, fine. We, we know. Believe, we believe you. We know why it's your favorite part of the show? Oh, and why is that? Because you have, at this point. Nine minutes to go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I won't admit that, but you, let's just say you may be onto something. <laughs> I think mostly today I'm excited to talk to you guys because、uh, it's Eat What You Want Day. And before I ask you what you will eat yeah, on Eat What You、us. Want Day,、uh, I, there are three kind of obscure products that we've mentioned, and I want to know if you've ever partaken in these products. The first one being the double down from KFC. What is double a, down? You've never even heard of the down. double down, Cole. What is the double down? So it's a sandwich, but instead of any bread, you have pieces of chicken,、oh. and then in between the chicken, you have cheese and bacon. I've heard of this, but I have not tasted two, it. Two pieces of chicken on the outsides, yeah. So instead of bread, it's just chicken. There's no bread at all in it. And I thought they smelled bad. <laughs> All right. So, if you wanted to try that, you're too late. I think.、Uh, here's another one: Crystal Clear Pepsi. Do you remember that stuff? I do not. Of course, I remember it. it. Did you Early try? Early '90s. Yes. I'm 16, so I don't know. <laughs> And then one more: Cinnamon Pepsi. And this is a new Slurpee flavor. Interesting. I would try that. You would? Yeah. Okay, so if you could eat anything you want on Eat What You Want Day, what would that be?、Uh, I would have a Monte Cristo sandwich at、uh, a restaurant in Disneyland. It's probably the greatest thing I've ever eaten ever. Wait, which restaurant think, in Disney? I'm trying to remember the name of the restaurant. It's it's in the、uh, the Bayou area. 
Is it on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride? Yes. Ah. The only thing with that sandwich is you want to kill those close to you right after. What? Do you care to expand upon that? Yeah. Yeah, it's odd. Interesting. Yeah, Hmm. that's that's probably what I would opt for. That's so good. How about you, Jeffrey? Oh, my goodness. Uh, Probably Muddy Buddies. Mm. Just a ton of cold Muddy Buddies. As opposed to hot? Yeah, you got to put them in the fridge or the freezer so that they're even crunchier. Oh, okay. That's a just good a tip. tip. Just a tip. Ah, life hack. I love yeah. it. Yeah, it's another discussion for another time, but I can give you the perfect recipe and the perfect way to prepare muddy buddies if you ever Tomorrow. care to ask. Uh, so I want now. I'm asking you what's coming up on your show, which I know you are doing today. Let's see. Are are, are we doing it, Jeremy? Don't tell me this is the one For day. For the first time, we are still not, can't not do it ever. <laughs> I got that. Yeah. yeah. Today we're going to talk about Eric Mika. Eric Mika, BYU basketball player. He's at the NBA Combine today uh, at the meat market trying to get drafted coming up in June. We're going to discuss, are BYU's NCAA tournament hopes next year? Are, do they hinge on whether Eric Mika comes back or not? Hmm. Because he, he has... Uh, 13 days to withdraw his name and retain eligibility at Brigham. So do, do the NCAA tournament hopes for BYU, and that's the goal, right? You don't make the tourney, season has a limited kind of ceiling, right, on the successor. Um, do they hinge on Eric Mika? You know, please tell me you're going to play some Mika music while you talk to him. What is, what is Mika music? What is Mika I can be music? brown, I can be blue, I can be violet sky. I can is that be guy's happy, name Mika? Yeah. I didn't know that. I think we just got it. We can use that, right? The guy that sounds like Freddie Mercury. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Go yeah. look it up. <laughs> yeah, he gone. <laughs> we're, we're also going to talk to the newest BYU basketball signee, Jashir Hardnett, a junior college transfer, a 44% shooter from three, a 60% shooter from two. Uh, he will join us on the telephone. Yes, and why the year 2037 is being discussed on the show. And... Jerem's 12-second movie review of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Coming up. 2037, is that when uh, the Blade Runner sequel is supposed to take place or something? (laughs) That's 2049. Oh, okay. Good good guess. That's really good. Hey, really quick before we go, I'm playing softball tonight. I haven't played in like seven or eight years. Any tips? Yes, stretch before you play. Hit the ball. (laughs) Back up. Your first step in the outfield should be back. I'm not kidding. Stretch before you play. Oh, my goodness. Ooh, I'm nervous. That's Spencer's uh, 5-1-40 advice? Exactly. And, and you're telling me I want to hit the ball. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah, yeah. Hit it yeah. Hit it where they ain't. Okay. Yeah, we gave you, you like five things. There you go. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Advice Sports Nation. You're a peacock. And All you right. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> All right. Have a good show, you guys. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. Thanks, Jeff. All right, Jeff. <sighs> Stretch. That's what my wife told me, too. So there must be something in this whole stretching thing. Yeah, that was my advice also. I'm just so nervous I'm going to pull something or I'm going to throw my arm out or I'm going to, like, burst this blister open. Or I think – you know what? I think there's a deeper problem here that Matt Townsend would help us get to the root of. And I think he would probably just say it's – maybe it's my fear of looking foolish – and disappointing other people, other teammates. We miss you, Matt. Jeff wants to sit on the Dr. Matt couch 
get get a little psychoanalyzed. See, that's the great that's the great thing about being his co-host and running the board is that I get all this free advice because he, you know, Un- he unsolicited ain't advice. He ain't most cheap. of the time. Most of it's good. That's a good point. Most of it, I really don't want to hear. Um, anyway, we've got one more interesting story here for you. A boy's lost cell phone ended up in a New Jersey garbage dump and survived. Ethan uh, Ethan Ronake's phone got thrown away at his high school on Monday. His father, Craig, in Philadelphia, he used an app to track the phone and saw it was on the move. The signal led the family to the Cavanta Waste to Energy facility in Camden, New Jersey. He suited up and started digging through a mountain of trash. He recovered the phone in 30 minutes, and it still worked. Workers were close to dumping the trash into a 50-foot-high and 25-foot-deep pile of garbage. The facility director says there's a little better than 50% success rate when they can identify the trash truck. That's amazing. And it's also amazing he's so lucky that uh, one of his peers was not there to see him digging in the trash and saying, Trash digger! Remember when people would throw your stuff in the trash and you'd have to go reach to get it and they'd say, trash digger. That was just you, Jeff. That's another thing you're going to have to talk to Dr. Matt about. Wow. We're hitting some pretty big issues here today. As you know, we like to end our show with the hero story of the day. As soon as school bus driver Teresa Strobel heard two ninth graders yell about seeing smoke, she jumped into action. The South Carolina bus driver ushered all 56 students uh, and immediately off her bus and radioed the transportation office to call 911 before the vehicle burst into flames Tuesday morning. The seven-year veteran driver and teacher assistant did exactly as she was trained and quickly and calmly evacuated all 56 students from the bus and got them to a safe location, the school district said in an online statement several hours after the incident. She is a true hero, and I would have to agree with that. Anytime you are putting... Your safety at risk in order to help other people. You're a hero. No question about it. And uh, she did her job. She went above and beyond. She is our hero of the day. So again, just like every other day, we encourage you to be a hero. You don't necessarily have to put your life on the line. And most of the time, being a hero doesn't involve putting your life on the line. You can find smaller and meaningful ways to be a hero. And again, they're out there. Go look for them. And it will enrich your life and the lives of those you serve. That's going to wrap up the show for us here today on the Matt Townsend Show, where hopefully we're giving you ideas, more solutions to live healthier, happier, and more heroic lives. We'll talk again tomorrow. Thanks for listening.